You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two-hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi-platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedouin Soundclash, I Mother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as the drummer for the Juno nominated band Joy Drop, as well as the platinum selling band Bedouin Sound Clash. He's also released two solo albums as a singer songwriter under the name Lalo. So welcome to the podcast, Tony Rabelo. Tony, how hey. are you? And hey, how, good did it, how good did it feel? In the last month, going out on tour across Canada with Bedouin Soundclash. Must be nice after a lengthy pandemic lockdown to be on the road. Yeah, first of all, hey, Joel, thanks for having me, man. Uh, really love what you're doing and great to uh, be a part of it. Thanks for asking me to join this. Uh, you know what? I remember, it's funny because the, 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 the last thing I did musically before the shutdown was we were just, we had just finished wrapping up a Canadian tour with Bedouin and we had just a couple of one-off dates left over and we were driving to Kingston and it was like, it, I think it was like the Thursday, everything kind of shut down on the Sunday, as I recall. And the Thursday we're driving up to Kingston with three shows left, one in Kingston, one in Peterborough, one in Buffalo. And as we're driving there, we're hearing all the news like, yeah, you know, this is, this is closing down. This is getting canceled. There's concerns about this. And, this is shutting down. And I think it was like, there was supposed to be like an NBA game or something. And they're like, no, we got to cancel this game. And they're like, okay, this is really serious. And we're like, do we really, you know, us going up to Kingston to play in front of, I don't know, 750 to a thousand people all crammed in this room while this is really happening for real. Is this a good idea? And we're like, no. And the managers are calling and agents are calling and promoters in the venue and all these calls are flying by. We get, to Kingston we check into our hotel and then we get to the venue and then we're like now nah, we shouldn't be doing this like this isn't the right thing to do right now we should just call it and and uh play it safe drove back home and then you know I was thinking yeah you know a couple of weeks of everything kind of stopping just to let this thing blow over we'll be fine you know and as we all know a couple of years later and um so yeah it's great to be back playing in front of people um people coming together, enjoying live music, traveling. It's awesome, you know? So yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, so you have the perspective where you were touring right up until things shut down yeah. and now you're touring again where hopefully it seems like we're near the end of this. Yeah. Have you found a big difference between the two? Like, are we back to what the crowds were back before the pandemic? Uh, is it still maybe the crowds are down a bit where people are still a little scared of going out? Or do you think the crowds are seem to be actually better or bigger because everyone that was cooped up really wants to get out there and be social again. I think right now uh, it feels like I don't really feel the difference. It feels like it always did. You know, um, there was a while when things kind of opened up and, um, you know, I guess people had uh, had some reticence. They were a little bit like, mm, is it too soon? Uh, the crowds were still there because there was a certain element of people that were just like, you know what, we've been chomping at the bit for this and we're going to do it and we don't care and we're sick of this. And we just, you know, um, but now it just feels like like old times. 
you know, and actually it was funny because last summer we started doing a bunch of festival dates. And because I, because a lot of promoters and people were like, oh, okay, there's going to be this huge pent up demand for, for live music again, then everybody was throwing festivals. And there was a fe- there was tons of festivals that had never been there before. And it got a little over- oversaturated. So, you know, some of the, the bigger festivals, more established ones took a bit of a hit because, uh, you know, some new upstart down the road was doing a festival and people can't do everything all the time. And, have to pick their moments so um now some of those new guys you know realize it's not just as easy as just wanting to, to throw a festival it's a lot of risk a lot of uh costs a lot of uh stuff involved and the old guys are kind of like yeah we know how to do this and things are sort of settling back to where they yeah where they you were. you you see um kind of the the scary side of festivals uh recently on netflix there's the the woodstock fiasco and the fire festival <laughs> fiasco both documentaries yeah. and yeah. you realize it's not as easy as booking a venue and booking bands like security yeah. and 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 food and washrooms and the amenities. Yeah. yeah and and you know i i saw i watched that woodstock doc and i remember at the time when it was happening joy drop was just kind of one of the peak periods of of, of our sort of album album and touring um because that was about 99 right so you're in between your two albums i guess yeah so we were but we were we were kind of like talking to our agent going get us on this this could be cool and in retrospect looking at this thing's like i'm glad we didn't do that because it it, it was just a it was a shit show man and it was just you know a lot of greed and uh that was the first concern the original woodstock wasn't really wasn't a money-making thing it was just that's something that they wanted to do in a very volatile time uh late 60s yeah. after they'd all been through all that stuff the war and civil rights movements all this stuff had been going on it was all love Assass- and peace then uh, you yeah know, assassinations and-, and yeah so that was the impetus behind it at the time and uh and then this then 40 years later they were like now we want to make some money so they're going to charge you know 10 bucks for a bottle of water and you can't bring your own water in and you know all this stuff that caused it to just you know disintegrate into what it became so yeah that's a a great example that you you can't always replicate something great that's happened in the past right especially if if, you try and especially if you're coming from a different place if you if you if they came from a place of you know just sharing and community and love and yeah, though, you know, maybe let's break even if you make some money. Great. I mean, nobody, you know, this is a this is a capitalist society. People want to make money, but you can make money and not gouge people. You know, people understand people understand that you want to make money and maybe not lose money. But when you're charging 10 bucks for a bottle of water and that's even like scarce, that means you don't give a shit about them. You just, you know, you just want to make money. Right. Then- yeah, and, and, and even the the 10 or 12 dollars they were charging that is 1999 like that yeah. in this day that's even yeah. that's 15 16 i don't know totally, i don't know what yeah. that costs today but that's ridiculous yeah. i yeah. i wanted to you know i was excited for this interview because i actually know you personally we have a history going back to toronto a while yeah. ago so yeah. i wanted to kick off this ep- episode powerfully okay. so i felt like i had to reach out to somebody to help me out here so okay. i reached out to another amazing canadian drummer and mm-hmm. I have some kind words for you. So this is from Mike Sleeth, who's the drummer. Oh, the, yeah. The three-time Grammy nominee, Sean Mendez, who's like one of the biggest artists in the world. Yep. And uh, Mike has the following words to say. He says, Tony is an absolute legend. The nicest guy. 
and a monster on the drum. So that's from Mike Sleeth to help Thanks, set this, the tone right here. Well, know? listen, I got mad respect for Mike. He's a badass and he's a great guy too. So I'm, uh, I love watching his, uh, his Instagram and seeing his travels and all that stuff. So he's doing great and I wish him safe travels and uh, lots more rocking, man. He's awesome. Thanks, Mike, if, you, if you're watching. We'll, we'll get this to him for sure. So uh, I always like to to start by sharing how the guests and I know each other. You know, in the music industry, it, it's all about networking and relationships and building community. So I like to show that. Yep. And in our case, uh, I, I moved to Toronto in 2010 yep. um, for different opportunities in the music industry. And very quickly after I moved there, I started looking for open mics to perform at. Mm -hmm. And everyone was talking about this legendary free fall open mics on Sundays. Uh, yeah. This was in the Kensington market. I believe it was at, it was at supermarket was the venue at the time. Yep. And uh, I went out, uh, I, I would drive from Mississauga to, to Kensington market. I, I went out probably four or five times. And uh, that's where I met you. You were hosting that. I believe it was with Steve York, if I'm, if I'm yep. remembering correctly. Yep. And it was amazing, just a community and a great venue. And it, it sounded great. And you could feel the love and support from not just you guys, the organizers, but from the crowd as well. Like everyone wanted to be there and everyone yep, wanted to totally. support. Yep. And man, I remember even uh, there, there was a time where I went where Justin Ozuka was there and he got up and played. So it was such yep. like a hub for the, yep. uh, the Toronto industry. So those are my memories of, of, where where we got started and it was only later like yeah. years later i found out you were the drummer for joy drop who mm -hmm. i was a big fan of when uh, sometimes want to die came out so yep yeah it's cool and and actually we still uh we still have the sunday nights going actually we're on tonight if anybody wants to come out we're at the dakota now we moved it there at the end of january we were at uh the supermarket for about 15 years we had a great run there but i think we just decided me and steve uh that it was just time for a change Dakota was a great fit. It's a great venue. It's got its own uh, lineage. It's a great music uh, spot. You walk in there, it's got, they got that soft lighting and the wood and the cow skulls and whatever. And it just feels like uh, a really good mecca from, from live music. And it is you know, really inviting, more intimate. And uh, we're having a great time there. So we're there every Sunday. Come on out. It's still that same vibe. We still got lots of music uh not just musicians, but producers and um, other artists that come in and not just there to just to play, but also just to meet each other and to, to network and to hang and ex exchange. So it's a great place for that. If you want to, you know, meet people and uh, hear what other people are up to. And it's a good hang. One of the things that me and Steve wanted to separate ourselves from other open mics, because there are, are a lot of other open mics, but we wanted it to feel more like uh more like a party, more like a like a gathering as opposed to like, I'm just there to play my songs, drink some tea and then leave when I'm done. Because a lot of open mics are like that. We want it to be a hang, we want it to be a, a, a hub, like you said. And uh, we've seen uh, bands start from there. We've seen babies born that couples met there. We've seen, you know, people get married. I've seen... You know, a young kid, 17 years old, started coming every week with his dad. Uh, and now he's a Grammy nominee. He's on tour with John Mayer. His name J.P. Sachs. He's an awesome. He's doing great. Amazing. He had one of the you biggest know? songs during the pandemic, right? Totally. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, when I see stuff like that, it kind of just makes me go, you know what? This is why we we did this, you know? So, and we're still doing it. And um, those opportunities are still there for everybody who, who chooses to uh, come on in. So. 
So after 15 years, that's a that's a lengthy period where you you have a uh, a lot of data points where you can tell us all the things that have happened. I mean, 15 years is a long time for oh, yeah. brand new artists uh, to yeah. to get started and, and grow into into world class musicians. So you've seen yeah. it all there. Yeah, and I love watching people, you know, their 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 evolution slowly because you know it's not a light switch. It's not like you know you do something once and it's and it and it's on. You gotta you gotta stay at it. So you know, I've seen people come when they when they first came and they just started. They didn't even know how to tune a guitar. You know, uh, they didn't even know that they had to tune a guitar or <laughs> that they were out of tune. And then eventually they they kept at it. They keep coming. They you know they they come that week. They reassess when they go home the next day. You know, what could I have done better? Oh, uh, maybe I can maybe I could sing this song. Maybe I need to learn a bit of mic control. Maybe I need to learn how to tune my guitar. This song seems to resonate. Maybe I should write another one like that. Or you know what I mean? And then and then they come back the next weekend and they build on that. And then I, I see them then go off where they don't even have to come because they need the uh, you know the, to workshop aspect of it. They come because they want to. And now they're off doing their own shows doing their own albums and i love to see that evolution because that's if you want it's 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 like what you want to get out of it you can is what you put into it it's not just because you show up doesn't mean it's going to be handed to you like you're going to get gigs and you're going to all this magic's going to happen you still gotta you still gotta work at it you still gotta uh you know put the time in and the effort and and seize the opportunities that are just laying there waiting for you to grab them right so and, and with such a supportive crowd there, it's the perfect place to try out new material, try out new songs. Yeah. Those new artists eventually build up a repertoire where they can do a full set and they've developed enough talent that people want to pay to see them and they can go from there on to, to paid gigs. It's like the different steps, right? Yeah, that's right. And then you too can be opening up for John Mayer or up for a Grammy or whatever it is. The sky's the limit, right? That's amazing. And I guess the last thing about the open mic, if I remember correctly, you guys would have special guests every few weeks as well. So you, there's a chance to to hear some amazing local artists. I don't know if you still do that or. Yeah, we still do it. We call that our, our feature. Actually, we do it uh, the last Sunday of every month. And tonight is actually because it's the last Sunday of the month. It's uh, we have an artist named Childlike and she's awesome. She's got great songs, great energy. And she's going to be uh, doing the feature. She starts at seven. It's free. Um, come down there you get to see somebody you know because usually with the open mic we give everybody two songs and um you know it's a, it's an opportunity for an artist to stretch out hear some more of their stuff also get uh you know promote whatever they're doing and um yeah play in front of you know bring some of their crowd and our crowd and you know just a good little uh chance for some exposure there so so we met back in 2010. We stayed in touch mostly online since then. Uh, since I started the podcast just under three years ago, it's funny as I am going on a hundred interviews now, and these are all oh. incredible musicians, mostly yeah. from Canada, some are international as well. But yep. as I'm studying and doing my research on these artists, you start to see kind of a thread through all of them. And yep. your name keeps coming up as whether you played <laughs> on this album or played live with that artist, or you, you, you have a history with them. So you also were kind enough to provide some kind words. So just like I shared some kind words from Mike uh, a minute yeah. ago, uh, yeah. you provided kind words for Casey Roberts with the Live yeah. Revolution, oh, yeah. 
yep. uh, with Rich Bedo from Finger Eleven Saint Asonia yep. and yep. Uh, Gordy Johnson from Big Sugar, the legend himself. So, yep. uh, so I wanted to start by saying thank you for providing those quotes. I know that those three really appreciated it, right? They yep. felt the love uh, yep. from someone that they respected. So, thank you for for doing that. Oh, it was a pleasure, man. I, you know, you you tour, you 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 do your thing, and in your travels, it's a small. You know, the world, it's a small world. The music world is even smaller. So, you know, things come full circle. You meet people. Sometimes you haven't seen them for years and you end up on a festival somewhere and you're like, wow, I haven't seen you since. And then you're trying to knock your heads together and figure out where the last time you saw each other was. But it's great. It's a great community of, of artists that, uh, you know, we all have a passion for it. And we all, we're kind of, we're all, we're all in it for life. It's not a hobby. It's not something we're doing for fun. It's, this is what we do. So when you, when you're uh, amongst other spirits like that, you're going to cross paths and, you know, the web just uh, gets, it gets, it gets, it gets wider um, and more connected. And it's, it's awesome when things come full circle. So, and you never know how sometimes, right? Yeah, you you guys are definitely all lifers. All the people yeah. I interview, it's like that you guys will be doing this till your last breath for sure. Uh, you can feel that that's just the spirit that that you know yeah. that's who yep. you guys are. Yep. Uh, so we're we're this is a full two hour deep dive. We're gonna we're gonna go through your entire life, career, discography. We're gonna talk Joy Drop, Lalo, Bedouin awesome. Sound Clash, yeah. other things. I want to take it all the way back to the beginning because okay. uh, you know none of us are are born with this crazy talent it is you know uh there's a little luck there's a ton of 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 hard work there's vision there's goal setting there's triumphs yeah. there's uh challenges that you overcome so yeah. i like to show our guests that they're looking at you know more of a final product with you where you've spent right. a lifetime working towards mastery yeah. uh, I, I want the young musicians that are listening that don't know how to tune a guitar right. to see uh your humble beginning so right. uh let's take it back to the beginning do you do you, where does this love of music come from and is there maybe an earliest musical memory that stands out to you well i grew up in a household that was musical like th there was a lot of innate musical abilities but they weren't, uh, you know, we, we, I wasn't my, my brothers and sisters and my parents are not musicians. My brother could have been a badass drummer if he wanted to be. He was good at everything. But there was always a love of music. So there was a lot of, a lot of music in the house and different styles of music. So my mom was, she was into, I was born in South Africa. So there's, there was some of the South African music and sh that she loved and my dad loved. And she also loved a lot of classical music. So there was a lot of that. My dad was into like South African music, like Hugh Masekela, Miriam Makiba, but he was also into a lot of jazz, Miles Davis, the Beatles, uh, Santana. These were the things that I heard growing up. My brother, my older brother, he was a rocker. Uh, my sister, she was more of the R&B functioner. And I was kind of, the, I'm the youngest. So I kind of got in the middle of all of that stuff and I heard it all. And so it all gets infused and, you know, when I was younger, I remember not really, not really liking when my mother would play the classical music, but then you get older and I now have a great appreciation for it. You know, um, it all gets in there. And then, you know, when it's your uh, time to express yourself, all that stuff that you, you know, ingested as a youngster, it all starts to come up uh, as your experience. And so I had a natural affinity towards the drums. Uh, you know, I remember the first time sitting behind a drum kit, I knew I'd be able to play it. Like I knew I wouldn't have to struggle with the 
you know, the coordination thing. I don't know if you can like, see what like I'm doing the rest here. of us. Yeah. Yeah. I just had it. I could, I could do it. I wasn't great, but I could, that, that basic coordination thing, I had it. And my mom wanted to, uh, you know, put me into piano, which is, I, it's a good idea, but you know, I could see it was more like, yeah, you don't want a eight year old kid bashing on drums in the house. You'd rather just have them start on the piano. It's a little bit, <laughs> bit easier to take. Mm. And I did that, but I, I didn't really enjoy it. And, um, I was always bugging them to get me a drum kit. And then finally they did. So, yeah. Did, did you start kind of on pots and pans or practice pads or quickly you got my, a drum kit? No, no, my, not quickly. My, my, my brother actually made me, he, he whittled me a pair of drumsticks and uh, I would <laughs> air drum. But I, even when I was air drumming, I knew that I was doing what they were doing. I knew I was doing it right. It wasn't just flailing around. I knew that I was doing the right thing. So I air drummed. That was my practice because I practice it as though I was on a kit. Your mind doesn't know the difference. If I'm doing this, right, my mind doesn't care if there's a drum, an actual drum at the end of my, my hands. It knows that what this motion means. So if you're, you can practice without a drum kit. And when, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that. But that's what I was actually doing was actually that was practice, even though, you know, I didn't get a drum kit till I was maybe 12 or 13. So, so what, what just, when you said that, what, what it triggered for me, where you're saying, you know, you're visualizing yourself playing drums and the mind doesn't know the difference. Yeah. It's the same thing where, you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of, uh, stuff with personal growth and inspirational speakers. And, and they say the same thing where they always tell you to visualize yeah. kind of that perfect future and achieving those goals because the brain doesn't know the difference between, yeah. uh, you know, reality and, and memory and, and dreaming and fantasizing, it just sees you doing it. And it's yeah. like, that's the way it is. And you kind yeah. of manifest that. That's right. That's right. And I, I remember there was a time when I, I had sold, I was, I was, I had sold my drum kit and I had ordered another one and I thought, you know, I timed it so that, yeah, by the time I sell it, my new one would be here and I could just, you know, keep going. And, and there was some delays and delays on delays and my, my new kit didn't come so I went about a month and I'm I, you know this is in my formative years when I was practicing you know four or five hours a day you know as much as I could so it was driving me crazy that I couldn't <laughs> practice but then I remembered what I just was what I was just telling you about like when I was a kid and I was like yeah that will work so I would sit in a chair close my eyes and I'd go through all the motions as though my drum kit was there and when my kit finally came I could feel that 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 all that visual visualization, the practice without the drum kit, paid off because I, 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 my facility was better, my ideas were better. It was flowing as though I had never stopped. Right. So. You, you you just uh, made me remember uh, back in grade ten in high school, I was in uh, music class. And the only instrument closest, I'm a guitarist, the only instrument closest was you could you could play bass. And I, I remember, say, the 30-minute bus ride home, I didn't have a bass, but I had the notebook. Yeah. And for the 30 minutes, I would I would look at, at you know, the music, yeah. and I would air bass, and I could legit, like, see what I was playing. And I would yeah. get home, and it, it, it was 100% like I had 30 minutes of practice on the bass. Oh, I'd get yeah. home, and I could play what I was practicing without the bass. So I, yeah. I, I know what you're saying here. Yeah. I'm feeling you. And it goes, you know, and that's, that goes with anything. You know, if you're a basketball player, if you're a same thing, you sit there and you want to play, practice your foul shot, it's the same thing, go through all that. And a lot of the, you know, elite athletes, they'll tell you the same thing, you know, um, that 
you know, you don't necessarily have to be in a court on a golf course in on a stage or in a rehearsal room with your stuff. You can still do it right here. So who, yeah. who would you say were your, your biggest drumming influences uh, at that young age growing up? So let's say when you first got the drum kit until you're, I don't know, 14 or 16 or something. Man, when I was a kid, I was, and I still am to this day, huge Rush fan. You know? Amazing. Yeah, Neil Peart was like, wow, to me at the time. John Bonham's a big one. Stuart Copeland is another one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I you know, I, was, I, I consumed, like, I think Permanent Waves was my favorite, favorite Rush album. Actually, it was just a, a show, a good friend of mine, Dave Langeth, badass drummer, who uh, who's on that. It's a tribute to Rush. And uh, I know that album inside out. And I remember being a kid and I thought, you know, Neil Peart's the best drummer in the world. And I'm, and it dawned on me, you know, this is like 13 year old me going, wait a minute. If Neil Peart's the best drummer in the world and I know all those licks, I'm the second best drummer in the world. That's how I used to think when I was a kid, but yeah. Um, so those were my, like my early sort of, you know, uh, influences that evolved over time. There's a lot of guys that, that I, that I, you know, influenced me that are like some jazz drummers and some more fusion guys. And, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of different styles. Ringo Starr is a great drummer, you know, um, Phil Collins is another great drummer. Dave Grohl, an amazing drummer. Um, and then there's a lot of guys that, you know, some people wouldn't even recognize you know, the average person wouldn't know their names, but they're amazing. You know, they're, they're probably super in demand session drummers, right? That don't have yeah. any recognition and live and live guys. And, you know, Larnell Lewis is an amazing drummer. One of my favorites, you know, he actually uh, came up uh, in a recent interview. So I had uh, audio engineer Jill Zimmerman, who's mm -hmm. in the Toronto area um, for she worked on seven albums in 2022. Yep seven albums and four of them got nominated for Juno's like she's, yeah. she's on a roll. Yeah. Um, and she, after interviews, I always ask my guests, um, is there anyone you recommend that you think would be a great guest for future episodes? And right. she said, Larnell Lewis, she said, uh, he's the best drummer I've, I've ever worked with. Yeah. So, so yeah, he just a, came up and I had to research him to, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a monster. He's like a world-class drummer. Like he's, yeah, he's up there with the best of them. That's and amazing. a great guy too. The uh, the three drummers you mentioned as being big influences. When yep. you look at a list of the top ten greatest drummers of all time, those three are always in that top always. ten. Like you pick the best to yeah. study from. Yeah, and there's there's a, there's a reason for it. And it's not only just you know when I say uh, I mean they're they're my influences. Now you know those lists. Yeah, the best. What does that even mean? Right. We know we, you know it's it's like they're the most popular. They're most influential. There's a there's a lot of different aspects. But for me, one of the things that um, that I look for is just individuality. Like they have their own voice. Obviously there's a certain level of, of technical proficiency, you know, that you have to have to be even considered and they all have that. Um, but when it comes down to it, it's, it's their voice and their, their, their individuality and how they choose to express themselves on the instrument that we all have in common, but you can, you can put two, two different people on the same kit and you'll think it's a completely different drum kit. Right. Yeah, all three um, of those drummers, the moment any of those three play, you know it's them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, such a unique style. So you started with drums, yeah. but over the years, you you also play guitar, you also sing, you're a songwriter. Yeah. So at yeah. what point do each of those come into play? 
Well, I, I'm a I'm a functional guitar player. Uh, um, I, I write songs on guitar, and the same thing with 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 piano. I'm a functional piano player. I write my songs on it. I know my I can find my chords, and I know well how I want things to sound and go. When it comes time to record or perform, I'd get I'd hire you know guys that do it really well or artists that do it well, girls or whoever that that, that do it really well. But I I know enough that I can articulate what I want. I can, I know the vocabulary and uh, yeah, I can communicate that, you know? So, so your, mo your mom putting you into those piano lessons, it wasn't yeah. all for naught, right? Yeah. At the time, at the time I didn't like it, but now I, I look back and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And I wish I'd have kept it up even more than I did, but it's fine. You know, I, I, uh, I like, I'm not trying to be a, you know, a virtuoso at any of those other instruments, but I just like that it ex it expands my 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 palette, my musical palette, knowing other instruments and how they how they function, their characteristics, and I can, you know, and I know that I can I can articulate that to a producer or to that person on, on that instrument that that's going to try and realize my vision. You know, so before you figured out that music is what you want to dedicate your life to, if I were to ask you as a kid, if I were to ask you what you wanted to be when you grew up, uh, what do you think your answer would have been? My answer would be music. Day one. That early. Yep. Now the thing is my parents, uh, old school, you know, uh, immigrants that came here uh, to escape uh, a bad situation in South Africa. And, you know, like most immigrant parents, they want the best for the kids, obviously, but they're also seeking opportunities that they that, that that may not have been possible where they came from. So my parents were like, I was good in math in school, so they they were all excited that I'm going to be some doctor or scientist or whatever, you know. And I I kind of appeased them a little while, made them think, but I knew full on as a kid I'm going to be a musician. I knew that, you know. So yeah, there was never any doubt in my mind. If if I were to meet you at 12 years old, who would I be meeting? What is Tony like at 12? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, I'm a, a bit of a joker. Um, uh, I was kind of like, okay, great. So 12, you're grade eight. Yeah, you're around in grade eight. Yeah. So I was always like a class president, class leader guy, but I would frustrate the teacher because they saw that in me, but at the same time, I was also pretty disruptive, not in a, not in a, like a negative, destructive, violent kind of way or bullying kind of way, but just like in a, you know, being disruptive outbursts, trying to be funny, you know? Um, so I was that, I was the kind of guy always on the outside looking in. I could, I was never in any kind of clique or group. I was always the guy that could sort of navigate between different groups and, this group wouldn't talk to that group, but I could talk to both of them, you know? So I was always that guy. So, um, yeah. You, you uh, were out, outgoing and confident or shy? Yeah, or... A, bit, a bit both. I was both. Okay. I mean, I, I had my insecurities like any 12-year-old. I mean, I, I was pretty awkward looking at that age when you're kind of starting to, to, to evolve into what you're going to look like as an adult. It took a long time. I was a, uh, a late bloomer and a slow bloomer. So, you know, you get self-conscious about things. So I had my insecurities like, like any, any other uh, adolescent does. Um, but, you know, one of the things that gave me confidence was music and a love of it. And knowing that 
I, I thought at the time that I was as good at it, you know, so that gave me a lot of confidence. And with that proficiency with the drums and music, did that give you kind of opportunities and chances to meet people and, and, um, I guess for me as a musician, I found that it, it kind of opened doors where maybe you'd be too shy to talk to people, but they're also musicians. So that's an in with them. Or um, suddenly you're, you're playing at someone's little, you know, house party or yeah. at a campfire. And normally you'd be too shy to speak up and yeah. you're somehow you're able to make friends because you're the cool guy that plays music. Yeah. It's like, I, it's funny. Cause I, I, I got to to uh, start playing with guys that were older than me, and who, like my my group of friends were like, those are the really cool kids, <laughs> you know. And they were older, and I guess they saw something in me, and they they, they kind of took me under the wing, and I I was able to play with them. So that that also you know for the other kids to go, oh that Ravelau, he must be pretty cool if he's hanging with that guy, you know. Um, but it's you know, and it's part of like I've always kind of come up with older musicians sort of taking me under the wing. And now I think I'm now I'm kind of turning it around and trying to be that guy for, for other musicians coming up. And that's part of the reason why I even started that, uh, the open mic stuff so that, you know, younger musicians could have a, have a chance to, um, to express themselves in a, and feel nurtured and feel supported, you know? So it's just kind of a bit of a, you know, paying it forward, giving it back kind of thing. So that was you at 12. If, yeah. If you and I were friends at 16 yeah. and you invited me over to listen to some music, what albums would you be spinning? What do you think? Oh, uh, there'd be some Tears for Fears in there. There'd still be some Rush. There'd be uh, some Prince. Okay, um, all right. There'd be, what else? I started having an appreciation from, that's when the Beatles started my, to go, I think my dad was onto something here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I was starting These guys to mature. are pretty good. Yeah, I was my 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 palate was expanding at that at that point. You know, sometimes when you're you're younger, you kind of it's almost like a cliquey thing. Like me and my buddies just listen to this, and uh, if you listen to that, you're not one of us. And I was kinda, I was starting to break out of that at that at that age, which is good because you know I think people should just uh, leave themselves open to just enjoy what the, what is good and good comes in all kinds of shapes, sizes, and forms if you're just open to, to checking it out, you know? So I've, I have one final question about growing up and then we'll dive into the start of uh, joy drop. Okay. Most musicians, you know, we're, we're told that you got to get that good education, that good job, you know, being a musician, that is a pipe dream. Nobody yeah. makes it. Did you ever have to deal with that kind of resistance from family or friends? And if so, how did you overcome it to go on to have such a successful music career? Yeah, for sure. I did. Cause like, I, like, I, like I said, my parents were kind of old school, had that sort of, you know, um, mentality of we've come to this land of opportunity, escaping something bad. So we want you to take advantage of that academically and uh and then and then make that transfer into a career that they see as you know legitimate you know music was not for them it to them it was always a, it was like a hobby you know so yeah i faced a lot of resistance but um you know growing up i was a I was a good kid i mean you know I'm, you get in trouble like anything else but it was never like you know, come and get me out of jail or I'm being suspended from school or that kind of stuff. It was like, yeah, what? I didn't clean up my room or 
you know, I, I came in an hour after curfew, that kind of bad. So that coupled with my approach, um, they had to kind of, I it forced them to put their stereotypes of what being a musician is aside because they know I'm not that guy. So all the stereotypes, and you know them just as well as I do, of overindulgence and uh, lack of, you know, boundaries or discipline. Music is, you know, the amount of time I've put into music, I could be a, a neurosurgeon three times over, you know. So if you're serious about it, you're going to put the work into it. You're going to take it seriously. You're going to take care of your body, take care of your mind, I, I, you know, um, never stop growing and learning and there's a lot of discipline that goes into it um people see a certain side of it and think that's what it's about and they see overindulgence they see you know i don't know uh you know that whole rock and roll quote unquote lifestyle thing that's it, it's there but if you're really serious about it you know you stay focused and uh, I think it, and that's, it's funny. I think the first time my parents saw me on TV, they're like, oh, okay, now maybe it's for real. <laughs> you know, that kind of legitimized it for them a little bit. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, all, all the big artists I've interviewed, for most of them, it took like winning a Juno or winning a Grammy or yeah. having like a number one single. It took one of those things for the parents to come around and be like, yeah. oh, okay, this isn't yeah. just a hobby. They're They're pretty yeah. good at what they do. Yep. Yeah. Do, do you think your parents were, were, you know, just happy that of all the things you could be doing as a teenager, that you were dedicated to music, which is a beautiful, creative thing versus spending time, you know, eight hours a day out with friends, skateboarding and I don't know, smoking or whatever. Yeah. I, I, well, on the one hand, they, they liked that. It was, it, it provided me with a focus that, yeah, I wasn't getting into trouble. Um, but at the same time, it kind of made them a little nervous. It was like, hmm, maybe they could hear me in the basement practicing my drums. And like, and I remember my dad saying to me, you know, I can hear you down there. You're getting, you're getting good. And I could tell that he was a bit nervous because he's like, he's getting good. And he might, it might click in his mind that this is something he wants to do. And I'm, and I'm thinking, listen, pops, I'm way ahead of you. I've already yeah. long decided that I just didn't tell you. Right. So. Yeah, he's thinking he doesn't want you to get any funny ideas here. Yeah, you know, but I already, had, I already had the idea long before that. Yeah, yeah that's too funny. So uh, as we jump into the history of Joy Drop, uh, mm -hmm. I have some kind words sent in from someone that was there uh, near the beginning. So okay. uh, this is from Trevor Hurst, the singer for oh. Conaline Crush. Awesome. Uh, and he has a, a story here. So he says, I met Tony when Joy Drop opened for a Conaline Crush on a Canadian tour. Watching him drum is so much fun. The man is a machine, but with a soul. He locks <laughs> into that groove. That was such a fun tour because of their band and their great musicianship. So from Trevor Hurst to Conaline Crush. Awesome. That was actually our first, like after we got signed in our record, I'm not even sure if it was, I think it might've just got released. That was our first tour with, uh, with the Conaline Crush in Canada. It was an awesome tour. They were... Uh, you know they were blowing up in Canada. We're and we were fans of theirs. Like it's it wasn't just like they the were industry huge. Yeah, it wasn't just they the industry platinum, machine yeah. going. Yeah, going. Yeah, let's put these guys together. We were like, we want to play with these guys because they're they're great. And it was a great fit. There was another band called BTK that was also on that on that tour, as I recall. And it was a cross Canada tour. It was a great tour. Got to know uh, Trevor and the guys. Ziggy, rest his soul. Who's one of the? He was one of the guys who passed away, maybe about a year ago. 
And uh, yeah, it was, you know, um, we, we joined up was interesting because when we got together, we almost made it like a job in terms of we would rehearse about five hours a day, five days a week. Like we made it like a schedule, like okay, 12 to five, Monday to Friday, we're rehearsing every, this is before we got signs, before we had any gigs, we had this, we had some songs and we just would rehearse it. So by the time we started playing live, we already had that sort of, you know, we were already tuned up and ready to go in terms of our, our chops and our, our, our tightness. And then, you know, there's certain only, there's certain things that you can only get from playing live. And that first tour really kind of solidified what we had already sort of taken to a certain point. And then the touring aspect of it just kicked us up to uh, another notch. And I, listen, I'm not going to lie to you, man. We were a badass live band. We were, <laughs> you know, we were like, cause we, we did the work, you know? That's awesome. Surprisingly, even though I was a fan of a Conaline crush, you know, back in the day at their peak, yeah. I only saw them play a few months ago. So, oh, uh, wow. With uh, so Finger Eleven just did shows in Toronto and Ottawa where they were recording a live album and DVD. Right. And I, I've been lucky enough to do four interviews with different members on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I went out and it was a Conaline Crush opening for them uh, in, in Ottawa here at the Bronson Center. So right. uh, yeah. that that's where I finally saw them play. And I met Trevor and, and uh, that's crazy. All these years I hadn't seen them until now. So I'm glad they're still doing it. Yeah, same. I haven't seen them since. I mean, I haven't seen them live since that last tour, since that first tour that we did. And uh, I mean, I see Trevor online, and every now and then we have a little, "Hey, how you doing?" Uh, but I'd love to see them again if I, if if they come to town, I'll definitely go see them. You know? So, how did you actually meet the other members of Joy Drop, and and where did the idea that maybe we should start a band together come from? So I had met a guy who's now one of my closest friends and uh, his name was Tom McKay. He was, he's also an Ottawa guy like me. And um, he had just moved here and I had a friend named Kobe James, wildly talented guy uh, who was putting his project together. And he said, I got this guy, uh, he's from Ottawa like you, he's going to be on bass. And uh, I, I, what I hadn't known was that Tom had already seen me play on a jazz gig, actually. And uh, so we came together and, uh, you know, me and Tom were, you know, we hit it off immediately, you know, kindred spirits in terms of music and just who he is as a person. You know, I was like, this is my kind of guy. He works hard. He's got a passion for music. Uh, he's a great guy. He's a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, he's got that producer song. He's a song guy, you know. And so the project we had initially started with kind of didn't work out. Uh, I started playing with a band called Bass is Bass. And they needed a, a sort of a guitar player slash multi-instrumental guy. And I said, you know, I know just the guy. And so I got Tom into, the, into that gig. And while we were playing with them, um, we, you know, on the road on on our downtime we'd be talking about music and i'm like tom you know i got all these songs and i really want to do something with it we should put this band together like yeah we should put it together so we'd be scheming you know about this thing we wanted to do and and our vision for it we're like yeah let's get i think a female vocalist would be awesome because of kind of the way these songs are kind of the direction they're kind of going in and um 
and then yeah we, we after our run with them we said let's let's leave this band and and uh, devote ourselves full time to to seeing our vision of this band we didn't have a name for it yet um uh, come through and i remember one day you know tom just said what about joy drop and i'm like that is perfect and uh yeah and that's how that's how it started me and tom actually that's amazing. You, you, you've mentioned a few of your influences. Uh, when mm -hmm. you're in a band and there's, say, three other members, there's other influences being brought in as well. Who would you say as, as a band, Joy Drop as a band, who were the biggest influences on, on those two albums? Ooh. Well, I mean, we all have a collective love of certain bands. The Beatles is definitely one of them. Bowie is another one. Um, but it was also not just specific bands. It was what was happening at the time. So at the time, there was a lot of uh, mixture between sort of rock and electronica was coming in. So there was rock bands playing with with, with beats. You know, uh, the industrial stuff was coming in, like Nine Inch Nails. Um, the grunge uh, stuff, probably. Yeah, the grunge stuff was happening. Uh, bands like... Uh, um, you know, Bjork was coming in there with her. So there, there was, it was that marriage of the electronica and the rock. So we kind of like gravitated towards that sound. Like, and I think that's actually one of the, the things that appealed to, to the label that actually ended, ended up signing as Tommy Boy was that they were looking for a, for a band that kind of married those two things together. And um, so, yeah, it was those sounds and, um, and that aesthetic that kind of uh, was our like, that's where we want to, kind of go aim towards but we want to make it our own and express it in a way that's us and also because um thomas Payne, yeah, the guitar player in the band you know he's a strong songwriter so we have we had strong entities and very individual characters characteristics coming out uh to make that sound the way the, the way the, the way that it did you know and how did you attract Tommy Boy that ended up signing you guys and releasing both your albums? It, was it demos you got to them? Was it you were starting to draw crowds live and they noticed you were creating a buzz? How, how do you attract them? Well, the, the beautiful thing about when, when Tom and I were in Bass is Bass, because they were, you know, Juno nominated, Juno winning band. And, and uh, we had lots of touring and, you know, they were, they had a good run. So we took a lot of their, the context and the people that we met through them and use that to help us with our, with our project. And uh, so we got ourselves a manager and that manager, you know, heard our stuff. He partnered up with a guy in the States who uh, managed the guys that produced our bases base second album. And his manager said, you know what, this joy drop stuff sounds really good. Can I help you shop it in the States? Because our manager had more of the Canadian connects. He didn't have his, as many ins in the US and that manager did. So they kind of paired up. He got the attention of Tommy Boy and, a, and Maverick, which was Madonna's label, Interscope, a bunch of labels. So when North by Northeast happened, I guess this would have been 1997 maybe. We had about 13 labels came to see us. Wow. Tommy Boy was one of them. This was a and showcase in Toronto case. or Ottawa? Yep. Or? In okay. Toronto for North by Northeast. Yep. And uh, so we had all kinds of labels at our showcase. And the next day, Tommy Boy said, we want to take you guys out for lunch. 
And so we had this lunch meeting with them and it was the A&R guy, Ian Steeman, who we're still friends with to this day, um, took it back to the States and uh, their label went, yeah, we like these guys. We want, we want them to do a showcase in New York. So they set up a showcase in New York. They brought the entire label out, president from the president on down, Tom Silverman, who's the Tommy of Tommy boy, yeah. his president, the whole label came down. When you get the whole label from the top down, then you're a little you're, interested. They're, yeah. they're interested. And you know, if they sign you, it's going to be a priority because the boss wants it. Right. And everybody else has to fall in line. So they came to the show. They loved it. We went to their offices, gave us all the Tommy boy swag. They, they wind us, dined us, um, wooed us, courted us. Uh, we also had interest from Maverick. We flew a Maverick guy in here to do a showcase for him. Um, we had it. We went to met met with a guy from Interscope who was actually the bass player from Blondie. Okay, Nigel, I can't remember his last name, but we met with him, and then we just decided to go with Tommy Boy. They they put an offer that was good, and um, we felt that they, you know, were really supportive, and they they had the clout, and they had, uh, you know, we had a top down interest from the president down, and they would they would give us the attention that that we needed, and they, and they did that. They didn't make all the right moves. Uh, but they uh, they definitely poured the resources and uh, made us a priority at the label, which is important. And how amazing is it that not only did you get offers from labels, but these were legit labels. I mean, uh, Tommy Boy Records went on to sell for $100 million to yeah. another label at one point. Yeah. And Maverick Records, so not just that you have Madonna, the powerhouse that's behind that, but yeah. uh, if I remember correctly, Jagged Little Pill from Alanis was on Maverick Records. Yep. And... And uh, they had the early Muse albums. Uh, they oh, dropped. They okay. dropped Muse at one point because I didn't know that they That's didn't cool. see the potential. Yeah. So they released, I think, the first two. Yeah. And it was once they dropped them that Muse actually broke through big uh, afterwards. They thought they didn't like the falsetto that he was doing. Sounded too <laughs> really? much like Tom York from Radiohead. Okay. Yeah. And. You know, Muse still to this day is one of the biggest live touring bands yeah, in the world. Totally. So, so anyways, that's awesome that it's like legit labels that were interested and you got a good offer. And uh, that yeah. leads us to the uh, debut album. So uh, Metasexual 1999, this comes yeah. out the year before the world was supposed to end in Y2K. And then yeah. nothing happened. The the the, the clocks on the uh, computers literally just changed to the next day and yeah, everything like... was fine. So yep. so that album comes out and the, the single Beautiful is... Mm -hmm. A big hit. It's a top yeah. 20 hit, even in the U.S. on the yeah, actually, actually it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a bigger hit in the States than it was in Canada. Um, yeah, because we were, you know, for all intents and purposes, we had, were an American signed band. So they they um, we were kind of presented as a U.S., uh, you know, uh, so that the U.S. was our major market and our influence, our major, sorry, focus uh, for promoting that album. We only toured Canada like an actual tour of Canada uh, on that first album once. We did a bunch, lots of shows, but an actual you know, tour, we only toured it once, but we toured the States endlessly. But that's also what you want as a band. You want to focus on the U.S. because, I mean, a gold or platinum album in the U.S. is 10, 10 times bigger than yeah. Canada, right? So you're yeah. probably happy to, to have the focus. Oh, yeah, it was, it was great. And, I mean, you can I think the U.S. is like a, it's a huge animal. It's you, you can focus on certain areas so we were we were in the northeast a lot um and you can just do the northeast you've got you know five six major cities there that are all within you know four hours of each other and there's so just that alone is, is, is more than the population of canada 
right? So, you know, yeah, you can, can you can drive uh, across Ontario for a day and you're still in Ontario. You're still right? still so, in Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Canada's, uh, you know, it's a great country, but it is hard. It is a bitch to tour. You know, it's just you've got to drive eight hours to get to a, a population center that's, you know, six figures. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And, and the winners are, are, are no fun to, to no traverse. Fun right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to, 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 you know, further your, your point that the focus was on the U S. So uh, when that album and that single comes out, I'm 14 years old and yeah. with the, fo- I'm obviously I'm in Canada with the focus being on the U S I actually became aware of the band with the next album with sometimes want to die, which was, right really big in Canada as well. Yeah. Right. And I actually thought to this day that sometimes want to die was the first single from the second album and beautiful. I started hearing it after sometimes want to uh, die. Right. I thought yeah. that was the follow-up yeah. uh, just to show the focus was on the U S and then uh, came back to Canada on the next. Yeah. Album. Well, and the reason, because the reason for that is when sometimes want to die came out, well, the, the album hadn't even been released yet. I don't think it was just the single was, was, was out. In advance, yeah, and the thing is, the song is called "Sometimes Want to Die." It got released at maybe like I don't know August of two thousand and one. You see where I'm going with this, and then you get September eleventh, and Clear Channel had had a list of songs that were going to be blacklisted because it was too sensitive or you know too you can't be playing this after after the horrors of nine eleven. So our song "Sometimes Want to Die." Was on that, but at the time it was shooting up. It was getting all kinds of ads at radio in this in the states, and was positioned to 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 blow up even bigger than Beautiful. And uh, and then that happened, and they shut it all down in the states. And the label went, okay, well that single's it's not going to happen in the states. Let's focus on Canada, and that's why in Canada we're more known for Sometimes Want to Die, and in the states we're more known for Beautiful. It's it's wild how despite you know. The album is the album. The single's the single. Dis- despite that, the factors that come into play that are outside of your control. You know, it's, it's like you you provided the hit single, and then suddenly there's the once in a lifetime nine eleven that you can't. It has nothing to do with you. you yeah, know? yeah. And I mean, listen, I I get that. Or or if there was a you know a meteor hit the hit the planet, I understand that. What I what frustrates me is when it's people that are, you know, in your circle, be it the label or or management, when it's when it's that which you can control or they can control that. I can't control a meteor hitting the planet or an earthquake or a volcano or 9-11. But I can certainly get on the phone with a label guy and go, what the hell are you doing? And that was happening. Uh, you know, beautiful was was supposed to be in that music that movie american beauty oh wow they, that would be big M- mendez the director called us up personally because i i've heard your song on the radio it's perfect for this this movie i've got coming out called american beauty he said it's not a huge budget budget movie but the cast is great and you know it had that critical acclaim factor to it the label went nah he's not offering us enough money we went are you crazy like this is a great opportunity they said no turns out it wins 11 Oscars, biggest selling soundtrack at the time. But that's the label going, nah. So when you're talking about the frustrations of things beyond your control, there's a perfect example. That wasn't a meteorite. That wasn't 9-11. That's some guy that's, that's got human error right there. going, yeah, I don't see it. Right. And you're going, are you stupid? 
And it was such a, a, a beautiful and, and creative and artistic movie, right? It's it was. Considered I could, one it, of the greatest of all times. So. I couldn't go see it for years. I did not go see it because I couldn't bring myself to see it. Yeah. You know? Oh, man. That's, yeah. that's tough. Uh, so Beautiful comes out, big hit in the U.S. Yeah. What was it like hearing your music on the radio for the first time? Maybe you had some indie play before that, but this was your first like legit hit single on the radio. What was that like? Do you remember the first time hearing it? You hear yeah, stories of people like pulling over their car or like crying or like showing their mom. You know? Well, I remember the first time I heard it was actually on CFNY, uh, but we knew it was going to happen. So, I mean, it was cool <laughs> and I dug that, but I knew it was coming. The coolest time I think I, I, we might have been in either Sacramento or Seattle or something. And I just remember walking down the street, somebody's driving by in a car and it's blasting out of their car, which I assume was on the, was on the radio. That was like, I'll never forget that experience. You know, you, you get into this, into this business. It's not for the money. Lord, believe me, it's not for the money. But it's, it's those, little, those little victories like that, those little experiences that that make you go, okay, this is why this, you know, no one can ever take that away from you. Like other things can happen. You can get dropped. No one can like your shit. You could, whatever bands can break up, but that no one, no one can take away. And that's, that kind of makes it all worth it. You know? So, so beautiful is the band's most popular song on Spotify. It has close to 250,000 plays. Yeah. Why do you think people resonated with that song? Why do you think people love that song so much? That's got to listen. I wrote that song. And it has a, when I wrote it, it was about me, but it was, it was something, I think it was just has a universal sentiment and uh, it's about, you know, just uh, self-worth and seeing that, that you have that despite uh, all the other things that are around you that could um, make it difficult, difficult for you to actually see that. And you can take that and apply that to anybody and they can find, you know, in their own lives, how it resonates with them. And I've had people, you know, tell me that, you know, it saved their life. There was, there was a guy who was like, I was going to commit suicide. And I heard that song and, and it changed my mind and it changed the way that I see myself. And he wanted to thank me for that. You know, another, again, these are the things that, that, that make you go, this is why I, I do what I do. Yeah, I don't think there's any more important feedback you can get than than that guy saying that it, it saved his life, it changed yeah. his perspective, and it, yeah. it really spoke to him. Yeah. What, uh, what, when you think back to that debut album coming out in 1999, yeah. what thoughts, memories, emotions come back to you? I mean, that kickstarted the entire lifelong adventure that you've been on since then. Yeah, and, you know, it was... I mean, we knew when we finished the album, we knew like, okay, no matter what anybody thinks, no matter what the industry does and all the different uh, factors that have to come to play for it to actually see the light of day and actually do something, have an impact on, on uh, you know, on society or the, or the population, no matter what happens, we love this album. Like we did something good here. And um we knew that and we knew that if if people could just hear it you know not everyone's gonna like it but enough people will that 
you know, it's going to, it's going to have an impact and it's going to do something. So we, you know, we started touring. They put us to work. We toured endlessly. Like I said, we probably did 250 shows in a year. Wow. And uh, Tara Sloan, who's the lead singer and, uh, you know, one of my, my closest friends, she wasn't used to that. You know, uh, she didn't, she was not prepared for that. Um, so it was a bit, it was tough. It was tough on her. And, uh, but me and Tom were like, awesome. Keep it coming. <laughs> you know, cause we, we, you know, we, we did, we were more seasoned than she was. And we already, we knew, uh, you know, the ins and outs and the ups and downs of touring life. And I'm, I love it. So um, it, it quickly dawned on us that, okay, this is actually gathering steam and uh, you know, you're going to be living out of your suitcase for a couple of years here. And, and that's actually, that's, that's actually what happened. But it was so great. I loved it. So in preparation for this interview, I went back, I listened to your entire discography. So the, uh, the, the two joy drop albums, the two solo albums, the Bedouin albums. And if you're cool with it, I'd like to dive into a few specific songs from this debut album. Is that cool? Yeah. Awesome. So uh, the song fizz. So Mm -hmm. the drums are so snappy. You know, the the verses are are basically just drums and bass with a little guitar, but it's drums and bass that are locked in. How important is it for the rhythm section to just be like tight, tight, tight? You know, it is. I mean, you can be loose, but it's still got to be tight. You gotta be loose together. Right. But it's the foundation of the house. And if you build a house on sand, it's going to crumble. So you got to it's got to have a strong foundation. And if you do, you can stack up any amount of things on top of it, you know, and Tom and I, you know, because we'd played together before and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd known each other musically, probably the one of the bass players I've played with more than any other is Tom McKay. So we knew each other quite well. So it was easy for us to kind of lock in and, and, you know, just set that solid foundation that we could build the rest of the tracks on top of and all that stuff. Like, they were a lot of that stuff is live off the floor. You know, it wasn't like, you know, just do the drums. And just, it was a lot of that stuff was live off the floor of that album. There was not one computer on it until probably until the mastering phase. Everything else was Neve console, two inch tape. Even the mixing was done by hand on a, on a Neve, you know, old school style. And editing was done by cutting tape. You know, our, our producer, Ron St. Germain, amazing producer, amazing guy. We're all still quite close to this day. Old school guy, man. He, he had he's got that old school analog um, mentality. His records sound great. He did Soundgarden, Bad Motor Finger. He did Tool. He did. Uh, uh, he's done a lot of great albums. I uh, at eighteen, I went to school for audio engineering, and I still have nightmares of having to splice tape, you know, physically. Oh, now yeah. with with, with uh, Pro Tools, where you can zoom in and edit yeah. and undo, it's it's so beautiful. So a- anytime someone mentions that they record it to tape, I get like yeah. this little nightmare flashback of uh, you know, it was the tail end of it was kind of phasing out, so they yeah. they had us just do a little bit of tape splicing in case it's still yeah, happening, case, yeah. you know. Yeah, and it, I remember us watching him do it. We were like. Because you know we had the song, it was, we it's like if you mess this up, we got to do this again, right? Yeah. So yeah, we were. But he's like, he's just, I ah, don't worry about it. He's like, he's just doesn't even, he doesn't even think about it. Like he's a surgeon. He's like a, he's like a pro at it, man. It was awesome to watch. Let's I love, it. I love that you mentioned that you guys recorded mostly live off the floor. Because here, here are my notes for the song breakdown. I wrote yep. live sounding drum kit. Doesn't sound like it's all chopped up and quantized. So it's exactly yeah. what you said. I yeah. could, I could. It, the the whole album it sounds like a live drum kit just playing. Yeah, I remember there was one song. Uh, I think it's. Uh, 
the line I think is on metasexual where we're playing it. It was to a click. We played to a click, but it wasn't, none of that stuff was, was, was put on a grid and quantized. And um, partway through the song, maybe about three quarters, the click ran out on the tape, but we kept on playing it. That's the take that uh, is on the album. Uh, so you couldn't even you couldn't even tell because we were so lot we were so dialed in at the time, um, and that's the beauty about the analog thing. Things gonna are gonna breathe. Your heart doesn't beat in perfect time and stay there. You know you, things gotta breathe, and you know that's what that human element is what makes it brings out the emotion in the music. You know, music today is just you know it is so precise and rigid even without the old auto tuning thing and everything's perfect nothing things in nature aren't like that you don't see straight lines in nature and right angles right we make that um the most beautiful things are the things that just exist naturally organically and music you know i like the marriage of both of those things use it as a tool not as a crutch is is, is my point right so as one of the principal songwriters for the song beautiful uh that song when it gets to the chorus there's some production stuff that comes in. So, I, you know, I have good headphones yeah. on, I'm listening. And when it really picks up and gets heavier in the chorus, there's some higher frequencies that come in and it's it's like a pad or keys or something. Do yeah. you know what I'm talking about? I'm just curious what makes that production sound that's extra ear candy, extra intensity when the chorus kicks in? Yeah, well, there's there's a synth thing that goes, doo-wee, doo-wee. there's that guy. I think they've got Tara's vocal going through some kind of, uh, you know, filter. So it sounds like, a, you know, it's got that radio distortion, distortion thing yeah. on it. Uh, there's a, there's a, some kind of, there's all these things that, that, that make it go from here to here. Right. And then the riff kicks in. Um, yeah. It was just, you know, that was the whole thing about that song It's like, it's how it leads up to that point. And then when that point hits, cause it's not just, you can go loud and soft. It's it's easy, but it, you have to also emotionally go there too, right? Otherwise, it's just a cheap trick. But if you if it's written into the music dynamically, it goes, it builds lyrically and emotionally, and then it goes big because it that's where it is emotionally. And I think that's that's also makes it that's also part of the the hook is that you've hit the emotional sort of the payoff part. But it was written in the music, not not just a, an, an engineering uh, or mixing or production trick, right? I uh, I wrote down that uh, I really like the song Spiders, that the drums and bass again were really locked in on that song. Uh, s- several of the songs on the album sound like they're programmed drums. My, my question is, are, are there programmed drums on the album or is it you've played the drums and then they're, um, you know, edited and, and tampered with afterwards to have the electronic sound? Yeah, on that one, uh, I think most of the, there's a song called, uh, yeah, well, I can't remember what it's called, but is it that Over one, and Under? Or no, Over and Under has no program drums uh, until is my drums slowed down, uh, uh, tape, slowed the tape down. Um, but most of it's just, um, my drums manipulated after the fact, uh, live. So okay, I, and I and I think again, it's like, um, it is. I think it's an interesting way to 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 to, to approach the to to try to achieve the same thing, but do it in a more organic way. 
and however you want to do it, it's, it's fine. Like I've got nothing against programmed drums. I think they're great too. It's, it's just, just another how, tool in your. Yes, yeah, it's, it's how you want to use it. But again, I, like these things shouldn't be a go-to or a crutch or just just because it's there. It's like what's best for the song, you know. I I'm I'm perfectly fine if it's best for the song to just use to have programmed drums and no real drums at all. Or how about no drums at all in this song? I'm fine with that. It's just you got to serve the song. Um, I'm of that mentality all the time. So I have two final questions about the debut album, and then we'll move on to the next one. So for the song Over and Under, uh, there's this really catchy, crunchy groove going on in the verses. Mm -hmm. Um, Where does that sound come from? Just... For me, it's I'm listening and I love it. And whenever it's not a traditional instrument, like, okay, I know that's not bass or that's not guitar. Yeah. So just that really crunchy, catchy thing in the verse. I, I'm just curious yeah. well, what's creating these sounds. That's It's interesting because I, I wrote that song. And what start, that song is a, it's a synth-based riff that you're talking about. That's how the song started. That's how... That's the first thing I wrote when I wrote that song was that synth-based riff, and then I built everything else on top. I'd, of that. I'd build a song around that part too if I yeah. came up with it. <laughs> yeah, so that's how that's how that's how it started. That's the main theme of the song, and uh, yeah, it's just it's it's got a sinister element to it. It sounds very sinister and uh, and heavy. Like I love synth bass, you know. So that's that's how that whole thing came about. So when we first started talking about Joy Drop, you mentioned that another band member said, hey, how about Joy Drop for a, for a band name? So yeah. the final song on the album is called Until, and there's a yeah. lyric, Until the Joy Drops Again. So I'm yeah. curious, did the lyric, the song, or the band name come first? Band name came first. Uh, that's Tom McKay. That song, actually, Tom McKay wrote. Uh, and, I, you know, he just wanted to, it was like, just like a tribute to the band. It's just like, you know, I think it's the last song on the album. Yeah. I haven't heard this. I haven't listened to that album in so long. I think it's the last song on the album, but it's yes, just a nice way to bookend the album and, and, uh, and wrap things up on an, and with a nice little bow. And yeah, that's a Tom McKay song right there. So the next album, album Vibrate comes out in 2001. Uh, what was your life like at the peak of sometimes want to die, uh, the peak of that being a hit single, the album being at its peak. Do you, were you on the road a lot? Like what was going on in your life? Cause most, the, most people don't know what it's like to have a yeah. hit single or a hit album. So for the rest of us peasants, we just want to know what that moment is like. You it know? was pretty cool because I think that song went top 10 here. And, but the video, we had Tommy Lee in our video and it went to number one on much music. And so the combination of the the top ten on uh, uh, airplay and the number one uh, video, and I remember that's the time when video was kind of king at the time. It dictated a lot of it dictated a lot of radio as opposed to the other way around. So yeah, it was it was an exciting time. You know, it was uh, we toured with um, Big Wreck on that album. Amazing, and uh, that's to this day one of the most fun I've had on tour crazy fun musical we'd go out and listen to them after uh, after our set every night uh great band and we're all still friends to this day um but it was a, it was a good it was a good time fun time again it's just a shame that uh that 9-11 had the effect that it did on on uh on its success in the states but for canada it was great and lots of touring and we got a juno nomination out of that and yeah it was a good it was a good time and um, you know, I just wish 
uh, again that uh, you know had 9/11 not happened, who knows what would have happened uh, south of the border here? Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, you can see beside me, I have the Big Wreck album. Yep. Um, so this is this is my wall of fame. So my favorite 12 albums from guests that I've had on the podcast. And yep. uh, Big Wreck is there from the Seku interviews. We'll talk about Seku a little bit later. There's a segue yep. that, we'll, that, that, that we'll go through. Um, when you mentioned having Tommy Lee in the music video. So that was my first taste of um, of joy drop. So I was 16 when that video comes out. That's the first right. time I became aware of the band and all this time until basically right now, uh, preparing for this interview, I assumed because Tommy Lee was in the video and you guys were si signed to Tommy boy records. I thought right. that was Tommy Lee's record label Oh, <laughs> this whole time, just yeah. because of you guys, I thought Tommy <laughs> Lee had this yeah. like insane successful record label as well. Yeah. So No, it was when, uh, when that single, when we were, we had recorded the, the, the album and then the label said, okay, that's, you know, this is going to be the single, let's shoot a video. They said, what, well, let's have a cameo in it. So they were giving us, throwing some names out there. And then they said, what about Tommy Lee? And this is around the time he had just had the whole Pamela Anderson thing had happened. And uh, he had actually, a, a kid drowned in his pool. Um, all this was happening at the same time. So he was in a bit of a slump, you know. And we said, well, do you think he'd want to do it after all the stuff he's been through? Maybe he doesn't want to have his face shown like that. And uh, they said, well, we'll ask him because his um, we used to, uh, you know, remember Everlast? Absolutely. That was uh, everything to everyone was my favorite song as a kid. I would yeah. sit by the radio waiting for it. Yeah, I had that album so much for the afterglow. Yeah, it was so great. Good. Yeah. So he he uh, his manager was also to Tommy Lee's manager. OK, so he said, well, you know what? Let me ask Tommy if he wants to do it. And we it was one of those things like. Yeah, I'll see. Even if he says yes, I'll see it when I believe it. When we show up to the video shoot and he's there, then I'll believe it. So we shot it in L.A. And uh, sure enough, we get there. They said, okay, Tommy's here. Just He said, all, all he asks is that you don't mention Pamela Lee Anderson and everything's going to be cool. And he was so cool. We had a great time. We hung out with him for like that whole weekend. And um, yeah, that's how that's how that. And, and even that, he's a, he, also, he also does DJing. And um, so we'd cross paths every now and then. He'd say, hey, I'm in uh, whatever town we'd be in. He's like, I'm DJing. You guys want to hang out? We'd go hang out with him. He came and DJed at an event at the Revival, called us up. We hung out with him then. So we'd stayed in touch for, you know, a couple of years after that and haven't, haven't heard from him since. But great guy. Nice guy. You mentioned that this album brought you guys a Juno nomination. So this was for Best New Group. What what does that Juno nomination mean to you? To have, you know, this is Canada's Grammys, to have your country acknowledge your your talent, your creativity, your hard work. What does that mean to you? It meant a lot. You know, it's you put all this work into something that you really believe in and that you think is worthy of uh, you know, being acknowledged and appreciated. And then when the industry comes together and go, yeah, we see, we, we recognize that and we're acknowledging that, you know, you don't need it, but it, it, it feels good. You know, it does feel good. And it makes you feel like, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing, we're, we're doing something good here. We're doing something right, whether you win it or not, but you know, it's, it's these little things that help you just, you know, reassure you that you're on the right, you're on the right path, you know? 
So listening to this album, you know, early songs on the album, like Thick Skin, Life on the Sun, Expiry Dates, uh, right away. You know, it's funny. Can I just interject? Yeah, go ahead. Most of the songs you mentioned are the ones that I wrote. It's interesting. Yeah? Yeah. These are the ones that stand. Maybe we have the same taste. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Um, so those songs right away, it becomes apparent, becomes apparent to me that this album sounds higher quality, more polished. Was there a bigger budget? You know, after the success of Beautiful on the first yeah. album, was there a big, bigger budget for the recording going into this one? Uh, recording wise, it, yeah, it probably cost a little bit more than the other one. I mean, it wasn't cheap. And, yeah. you know, we went all out. You know, we spared no expense on this one. Uh, we recorded it in Vancouver at the warehouse and at the armory. We had uh, Garth Richardson produced it. We it's had uh, Randy Staub mixed it, who does a lot of Bob Rock stuff um we had the you know um uh oh God, what's his name bob ludwig mastered it you know it's it, we've spared no expense at it so um that's why it sounds the way the, the way that it does you know um but again you know production ain't gonna save you if the songs aren't there and uh, we felt that they were it's funny. Uh, all, all the albums I listen to preparing for these interviews, Bob Ludwig comes up on almost every album that yeah. when I see who mastered it, yeah. uh, which is crazy. Oh, and, and with Garth, um, my uh, I always say I three favorite albums of all time. One of them is Raging Against the Machine self-titled yep. debut in 1991. And just the yep. fact that Garth produced and mixed i believe he at least yep. produced it yeah it's like the fact that i talk to this guy every now and then it, it blows my mind like i i try not to fangirl you know just with the work <laughs> he's done so yeah oh yeah he's uh he's got uh he's got that lineage his dad was an amazing producer he's a, he's an awesome producer and um yeah we got to hang out with him for a few months in vancouver got to know him well we're still friends to this day you know um and yeah, he used to talk about, you know, he's got one of the things I love about, you know, the, the business and the industry and the people that come uh, across paths with you. It's just you get to hear their stories and everybody's got their stories and their their, their path and the, the journeys that they, they take. So it's always fascinating to hear stories of, uh, you know, stuff that you know about, and, you know, how did this come about and how did that come about? And, and you exchange these things with people and. So it's like getting to see how the sausage is made, you know, because most of the time you just see the fi a final product and not to get to hear, you know, the stories, the trials and the tribulations and the pain and the blood, sweat, tears that go along to make that thing, you know. The Wizard of Oz behind the curtain there. Yeah, make exactly. it magic. Yep. So, so uh, Life on the Sun, I, I love the drums on this song. So the verses are like really intense and driving. And then the chorus is like a halftime and re really yep. heavy. Was that one of the most fun songs to play live as a band when you guys were touring? Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's got that live feel. Like, I mean, when we when we were recording, you kind of have that in mind a little bit. Like you can picture yourself playing that live and and it's a big song it's got big sound and you can picture it filling up a, a venue and yeah it's 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 a fun one to play live um i, I from the, a lot of the feedback that i get like yourself that's that's a lot of uh, people's favorite songs on that album too so so it, as I'm listening to those two albums, I feel like I'm getting these Easter eggs because like I can step back and see things across multiple albums. Yeah. So at the end of the first album, the song Until yeah. had the homage to the band's name. And yeah. when we get to the end of this album, 
The last song is Metasexual, which right. is the name of the first album. Uh, so my question is, is it the same thing where the song is an homage to the first album or was the song written during the first album, but didn't make that album and then was added to the second album? These yeah, are the no. questions that keep me up at night, Tony. <laughs> well, I shall I shall ease your mind and let you have a good night's sleep. All right. Uh, Metasexual it, the, being the title of the first album, uh, Thomas Payne, the guitar player, uh, came up with the title. Uh, Metasex, I, there was some philosopher, writer, guy who came up with this concept about sex not for procreation, but for pleasure or for anything but procreation, which, you know, most animals, it's for It's only for procreation, yeah. And it's, it's a seasonal thing. You know, it's like, you know, the rut in for, for, for like elk and deer in, in, a, in the fall, you know, or, uh, you know, um, whereas humans, it's not for procreation. It's actually for almost, <laughs> in a lot of ways, everything else but that, you know. And so I guess it was studying that. It had a that that concept had a cool, cool concept, and also the word rings well. It's like that sounds intriguing. It sounds like something you want to look into. So he came up. He heard that, and then he decided. We decided that that'll be the title of, of the album. Uh, and then I guess after that, he decided I'm going to write a song based on that, which he did. And that's, so the, the title came first and then the song. What, what do you think made Tara such a great front woman? You didn't, uh, in, in rock and in heavier music, it's mostly male dominated. So yeah. she, she was kind of like your 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 secret weapon or something that yeah. uh, she helped the band stand out and um you know a great captivating front woman who's gone on to great success in other mm -hmm. things yeah. uh, what do you think made her such a great front woman for joy drop well she was the last to join the band she was the missing puzzle piece we had things in place we had songs written we had actually tried a couple singers out before her and they just they just didn't have it there was, there was something missing something you know they could sing but they just didn't have that something. And she walked into the room and it was like, even before she opened her mouth, like she's got something. I mean, yeah, she's a beautiful woman, but besides that, she had this, this energy, this vibe about her that that's very captivating and powerful. And she's, she's all that. She's a beautiful woman. She's smart. She's fearless. And I think her fearlessness is one of the things that makes her um, a great front, a great front woman. Um, you know, and this is at the time, like you, we alluded to, we were talking about the uh, the Woodstock '99. It's around the time when you know there's a lot of douchebags, a lot of douchebaggery going around on, on in those days. Guys were, you know, like very inappropriate a lot of the time. The toxic and masculinity yep, and, yeah, and, and, and uh, Limb Biscuit was like the the yeah. the front band for all exactly. that. Exactly, and they were fueling it. So we'd go on. I mean, we'd go on. She she had, she because she's the, the the lead singer. She'd have to do a lot of the interviews. And at the time, the, the the disc jockeys, the DJs at the radio stations, they were they were just they were just like that. They'd be like, "Yeah, so what's your vagina look like?" And saying just being shit like that all the time, right? And she she doesn't suffer fools. So and guys in the audience was saying shit to her or being inappropriate with the girls around them that she could see it. She called them on it, and then she'd get back to the mic and just kick their asses. And she was fearless and and. Uh, and confidence. She come. She had a great presence on stage, and she's a cool rock chick. She loves rock music. She's just. She loved it. She. She embodied it. She embraced it. She. She just took it on and ran with it. 
and it was great. And it was great to watch. And it was great. It's a great energy to be around. And you know, as a, uh, I mean, as a drummer and you know, one of the founding guys of the band, to sit behind that and and know that everyone's got their 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 role in the band, and there was there was no there was no weak link, you know. And her being you know the face of the band because she she was she is. You know, she's got to she's got to step up and represent, and she did that fearlessly. It was amazing to to to, to be around and watch that. So I wouldn't be doing my job if I, I didn't get some words from the great and powerful Tara Sloan. So singer from Joy Drop, TV host, doing amazing things in the hockey world now. Uh, she said she she sent in quite a bit to say about Tony. So uh, here we go. Tony Rabolo is one of my best friends on this planet. Everyone calls him Rabs, but I call him Tones. A soulmate in the truest meaning of the word. He has one of the biggest hearts I've ever known. A razor sharp and contagious sense of humor and a vast intellect that at times is outside of our dimension. Musically, the man is a genius. Tricky, clever, shifty. Uh, perfection with lyrics, melody and rhythm. Tony has a touch for songwriting that puts him among the best ever. It actually pisses me off that more people don't know how fucking good he is. I guess she has a, a, a dirty <laughs> mouth like you. You guys deserve each There's other. like a trucker, yeah. Uh, and, and, and as a drummer. Well, he is the badass-ist. Uh, I know that's not a word she says. Uh, he's the most badass drummer in the land, full stop. That's from Tara Sloan. Awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. And uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because when you're in it, in that bubble, and you're spending, you know every day all the time in close quarters you know people can start to you, you start to see you know the things that you, know, you can easily irritate each other and when we were in the band at the time it was so pressure and uh the amount of time we spent together you didn't we couldn't really appreciate it and see it for what it was and it wasn't until the band sort of you know went our separate ways and put things on the shelf that we actually became really good friends because we didn't have that. We didn't have that that added pressure, and we could just sort of step. We were outside of it, and we could just see each other for who we were as people. And we became very good friends uh, after uh, the fact. I mean, we were always friends during, but like again, it's like it's like a family, and families, you know, you live in the same house. You, you know, it's like you know, who who left the, the milk carton in there with no milk in it? You know, or who didn't do this, or who didn't do that? You start you start getting at, at each other a little bit and then when you can step outside of it and actually see the, the person for who they are and and get to appreciate that um it was an amazing thing and to this day we're still the best of friends yeah so in in, in 2017 you guys uh you guys got back together you reunited for a few performances uh how good did it feel to be playing again after all those years and for the fans, is there any chance at any more shows? I'm just, I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, well, one, it felt amazing. It was uh, a great experience. It felt like getting on a bike. It's just like, oh, we're, here we are again. You know, it felt like, uh, you know, like nothing had nothing had changed. And we were just uh, picking up where we left off. We added one or two extra members just to fill out the sound a little bit on stage. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience. It, it, it felt so good to play those songs again. It had been so long 
And uh, yeah, there's a good chance we're gonna we're gonna play again. We play when we can. She's got a crazy schedule. She lives in San Jose, California, right now. She got an uh, amazing opportunity with the Sharks, right? With the Sharks, she's doing yeah. Some big things. So she's still got the music thing going, and and she's doing a lot of TV stuff and sports stuff. And Tom is a, a, a very busy producer. He's a great producer, so he's always busy. I'm doing a lot of touring and. So, you know, it's just trying to work out our schedules. But when we see a little window of opportunity of, of uh, you know, maybe we can, you know, do a show. Actually, this year is our 25th anniversary of uh, of Beautiful and Metasexual, I believe. Yes, it is. It is. So we're thinking about you doing something for that to, to commemorate that. So, uh, yeah, I'd say look out sometime this year, maybe in the fall around there or something to, for us to do something, a show or something, you know. That's amazing. I uh, I was talking to her and I said that she's living the dream because she can she can cover hockey in the middle of winter and then go outside and get a tan. Like oh, she she figures she somehow crafted like the she, perfect. She figured career. it out. Yeah, she figured it out. It's awesome. Actually, I'll be going out there in in a bit to do a bit of writing and see what happens. But uh, yeah, San Jose. Yeah. Amazing. So let's let's dive into your uh, your solo career to your two solo albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess what I'd like is we we have listeners that listen to every single episode, regardless of who the guest is. Right. For our listeners that maybe haven't had a chance to talk to listen to the two Lalo albums, mm-hmm. how how would you describe your music? Which is like a little taste tester to send them over to Spotify to listen or to buy after the interview. That's a tough question, but I would say it's got a it's it's the rock records, but there's an element of of soul, and it's a little piece of everything that I that I'm into. So it's it's song driven, but it definitely has uh, there's an edge to it. It's rock, a little bit of soul in there, um, you know. As a as a writer, my influences are like the Beatles, Tears for Fears. Uh, you know, so I love melody. Uh, so there's always a strong element of that in every song, and lyrics, man. Like you got to say something. You know, I I don't I don't do throwaway lyrics. I mean, they might not mean something to you, but they mean something to me. And uh, you know, so I think if you if you like song, the craft of songwriting, and you like melody. And um, there's something there for you if you want. If you're a lyric uh, person that focuses on lyric, if you like, if you if you're more into like listening to the music aspect of things, there's there's that too. It's carefully crafted and carefully thought out, and and it's expression of 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 who I am. So, and I think I'm all right. So I think you'll like it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, w- when you perform the Lalo material live. Yeah. You're you're playing guitar and singing as opposed to drums. Uh, are there are there certain things you love more about that about being the front man with guitar and vocals versus the drums? And are there kind of on the other side are there things you love more about being at the back on the on the drum kit? Like yeah, you, have, yeah. you have a rare insight into both of those. Can you give yeah, kind of maybe the difference or what you like yeah, or don't like? They're about two both? completely different animals, and I think well one. What I the th- one of the first things I noticed the first time I did it was when you're the singer, when you're the front person, they watch everything you do. Like their their eyes are on you constantly. As a drummer, 
people sometimes, you know, they, they, they notice the drummer. If you do something crazy, they'll watch you, but they're not watching you. Maybe other drummers are, but the majority of the crowd is not. And as a singer, between songs, even if you take a sip of water, they're still watching you. And I, you, it was like, it was very kind of uh, made me very self-conscious at first. And I realized <laughs> how difficult it is to do that. You know, actually there's a song on my, on my first album called an apology. And I wrote that for Tara because, you know, we were a bit hard on her at times on that first tour, because like I told you before, she was, she wasn't used to used to that touring life as, as we were. So uh, she had to make that adjustment. And sometimes me and Tom could get a little bit impatient with her. And it wasn't until I started singing, I realized how, how difficult that is to, to do it and do it well. And, um, yeah, it's a different perspective. Like, and also there's this whole thing about what do you do? <laughs> you know, like if I don't have a guitar, sometimes it, I don't I'm just just me and a microphone. You, you sometimes you get a little self conscious. You got to just get into it, do it, and lose yourself, and then you forget about all that stuff, and then you just channel the music that you're singing and what you wanted, what your intention was when you were expressing that emotion. And then you can just lose yourself in the moment and do that. Um, and I, I really enjoy that part of it. You know, being a drummer, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different perspective. You've got the power, you're the loudest thing in the room and you've, you, you carry so much weight and power. You just stomp on a bass drum on the bass drum and you hear it fill up the whole hall or the crack as a snare. And you know what you do, you know, it affects people to the core, you know, and if they're dancing, it's because of you. And if they're not dancing, it might be because. And you are the generator of energy and the shifter of vibes. So it's a, it's a, it's a big role to have. But, you know, if you're up for the task and you're feeling it, it feels amazing. No one dances to someone singing. They dance to someone. They dance to, to, a, to a beat, to somebody drumming. So it's a, it's a powerful uh, position to be in. And uh, it feels really, really good. You mentioned earlier that you're a, you're a fan of Dave Grohl. What's great about what Dave Grohl has great, what, what's great about what Dave Grohl has done is he has, um, he's kind of created this template where you can, some, a drummer can go from being the drummer in a band to being the front man on guitar, vocals and, and songwriting and show that you could do both and be in two of the biggest bands of all time and be critically acclaimed and successful. Um, I think that's awesome. It's, it's kind of, that's kind of the template that, that you're able to follow as well. Yeah. And it, it opened the doors um, that, you know, maybe in the past people would say, well, you know, the critics, you're a drummer. Why don't you just stay behind a drum kit? And yeah. it's, it's yeah. now you see like, well, if people are telling Dave Grohl to stay behind a drum kit, we would have lost out on one of the great bands. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you're a creative soul, then you're going to express yourself in any way that you can. And if you can express yourself in other ways, like singing or writing or playing guitar and, and drumming, then why limit yourself just because it brings other people comfort to try to, you know, pigeon you or pigeonhole you in this one little thing. And for me, I'm just a creative person and, and my creative outlets are drumming yes and singing and writing songs and 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 you know putting sounds together and that's just an expression of me and uh, i see no reason why i need to be defined by by just one thing you know and and people shouldn't limit the, limit themselves to that you know 
if they have a passion for other things and uh, and they can do it I go by all means do it you know you you gave us a little bit of insight about the song and apology so let's just dive into that that first album so zigzag mm-hmm. comes out in 2007 uh my two favorite songs are something missing and just like you nice. and and an apology i i wrote down that it has a cool pink vibe kind of pink yeah. floyd kind of vibe uh, yeah. are you actually a fan of pink floyd i am a fan of pink floyd yeah yeah uh yeah that song it was one of those ones that came quick like some of the some of my favorite songs of of, of mine are the ones that you know was kind of like you just reached up into the ether and you pulled something down and it got channeled through you and it happened quick you didn't have to think about it too much i mean you can you can labor over songs and you know they can be amazing too but I find that when uh, when you open yourself up and you let it come through you and you don't get in your own way, those are the, some of the the best uh, the best uh, creative moments that you that you'll have, and some oftentimes the ones that uh, resonate the most with with listeners. I I'm gonna make a comment that might hit or it might miss. So let me know if I'm completely off here. Uh, were you ever <laughs> okay. were you ever a fan of Silverchair? Or Daniel John's the singer of Silverchair? No, not really. Um, the, the Australian band, right? Right, yeah. They made a bit. So way back, their debut yeah. album, Frog Stomp, 1994, yeah. every band was getting signed to be the next Nirvana, right? Exactly. They had Nevermind and then in Utero, 94. So it's at the peak. And Silverchair, they were 14 years old when they got yeah. signed and Frog Stomp came out. And they were the next big thing. And they were amazing. I love them. Uh, the reason why I was asking is... When I listen to both of of the solo albums, you know, despite different influences, the main thing that came to me is um, Daniel John. So they started as grunge. And then Mm -hmm. over the years, Silverchair really opened up. um, You could hear the genius of Daniel John's as a songwriter. And it was kind of like Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins, where there's on one album, like Mill and Colin and the Infinite Sadness, you hear an array of like piano ballads and and acoustic and metal and all these things. So Daniel Johns is very much like that. And your albums, uh, you have such unique sonic choices and you can really hear the musicality. And there's this super wide palette of, of sounds and genres. And it, it, it was the later Silverchair albums where they really expanded on the sound. It's like, there's kind of like Beach Boys stuff going on. Really? And, I didn't know that. Maybe I got to give them a yeah, second yeah, listen. Yeah. So, yeah. so way later, like near their breakup, uh, they have an album, Young Modern, is where they really, like, you wouldn't even recognize Silverchair anymore. Yep. Um, so that was the, the what came to me as the biggest comparison I could make. And okay. it's, it's ba- I'm basically saying it's, you have, you have such musicality and a wide palette and and it's a compliment is yeah what I'm on, the, to on, get on, to. on on that level yes I can totally I can totally understand now I don't I don't know Silverchair that much except for the stuff I remember when the early were, grunge stuff the, the yeah. grungy stuff and which didn't really resonate with me but when you're saying that to me then I I you know you're piquing my interest I'm, I'm I'm actually gonna go and listen to that because that to me um you know bands have a you know a lot of artists and bands yeah, they have a core, there's a certain core uh, definitive sort of sound that they, that, that may have made them popular or how they got their start, but then they go out, they, they, they expand their, their palette, they expand their horizons. I mean, let's just listen to the Beatles, for, for example. I mean, to go from, you know, please, please me to Sgt. Pepper, you know, and I love when artists just open themselves up to, to being, uh, 
free to express their musicality and they're not afraid of you know alienating certain elements of their fans or their industry or whatever their label and they just do what makes them uh feel happy and 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 expresses you know um their creativity so having said that Yes, I'll I'll, uh, I'll uh, respect the silver chair for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept this uh, this comment. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I guess sometimes it's it's when artists are brand new, they're still just trying to make it and make a living and make a name for themselves. And sometimes they provide an album or music that is what they think will be popular. And it's like once they've given the label what they want and the labels made money, it's like yeah. then you actually see who they are and they start expanding on their sound because yeah. they kind of earn that freedom yeah and i you know what and i i kind of um we're not in an era of albums so much anymore and people still make albums but pe people don't listen to them as albums and i think that's really unfortunate because you're missing you know what uh, the totality of what the artist is really trying to say in that moment in in their creative in that space and people are just kind of like oh they're looking oh what's the most popular, which has got the most, most hits. I'll just listen to that song, you know, or the single or whatever that the case may be, but they don't listen to the body of work. And it was crafted as a body of work, start, middle, end, a story, a flow. And I wish that people would kind of go back to actually taking the time and um, listening to an album in its entirety, you know, and then, you know, of course, you're going to have your favorites, but at least give it a proper listen, like give it the listen that uh, that it deserves, you know, because the artist put so much time and uh, thought and, you know, emotion into that. The the song Something Missing has really tasty bass playing. Can you give a shout out to whoever's playing bass? On that song, it would be Tom McKay. Yes. Okay. Yes. And this funny. guy is all over your career. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Really, you guys yeah, are partners for sure. Completely. Completely. So he, he uh, actually produced both those records with him and uh, he played uh, bass on a lot of the songs and played some keys here and there and played some guitar here and there. So he's, he's got a, he's got a big presence on, uh, on both of my records. Yeah. So the second album comes out 11 years later. So lefty comes out in 2018. Are, are you, are you playing drums on both the albums? Like, I, yep. I guess I just assume because you're a drummer. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But I don't have to. And uh, I don't need like I, I it's just it was easy because I know I know this. Obviously, I know the material inside out because I wrote it. But, you know, there are times where I, I think, you know, I can think of a certain person that I know and go, you know, what? he'd be better on this than me. Or, or I'd love to hear what this guy would do or this girl would do on this as opposed to me i know what i would do i'm not interested in that sometimes i'm interested in what that person would do and maybe it'd be something that i would never think of that i go wait a minute that is awesome so i'm always open to that so my favorite songs on the album are second guess looking for a sign and right where i want to be nice. i do you do you find that it's like the same three songs that everyone tells you they love or is it all over the place and it's cool to hear um that people like different songs it's usually, yeah, it's either, two, it's two or three, but I oftentimes, like, you know, like for me, second guess is one of my favorites and there's only a few people that, that, that point that one out, uh, right where we want to be gets, gets a lot of mention. And so does looking for a sign gets a lot of mention. Uh, those are probably the two that get them, the, the, that are most consistently mentioned. 
I'm glad I could put a spotlight on second guess then. So our listeners, yeah. our listeners go listen to second guess. Uh, both of your albums have 11 songs on them. Tony is 11 songs. The sweet spot for how many songs should be on an album. I kind of like it. Cause you know, I've got a lot of songs. I've got hundreds of these things, man. And uh, it's always difficult to kind of whittle away, you know, and then even in the process, as you're putting the album together, you go and write a new one that now you love and you go, oh, I got to have this one on. But I don't want 13 songs on the album. 10's not going to quite cut it because then I got to, you know, but I, with 11, I can kind of, you know, I find a nice balance of, of, of my must-haves and and uh, what I think, you know, this new one that I just wrote and, you know, maybe some of the other ones might have to wait till, till, uh, till another record. But 11 just seemed to be, it wasn't planned. It was just like, it just happened to be like 11. And, you know, it's not, you know, it's not too much uh, to take in all at once if people still want to do that, which I wish they would. And, uh, and it says what I wanted to say. Yeah, on a recent episode, I was... Uh, talking about album lengths with someone and I was saying that when there's more than 12 songs on an album I always feel like there has to be a little bit of filler like if they shaved off one or two songs it would probably be a better album so I think 11 I think I think you know what you're doing with the uh, the 11 there Um, I, I was asking if it was you playing drums on the the albums because I have a note for the for lefty um I for the album Lefty, I have a note saying the drums are awesome on this album. I feel like the drums um, stand out more on this album. Do you yeah. do you think your your playing was a little more upfront on this album, or maybe it was just the songs you wrote that required more drumming? I, I put more thought into into it, and I sort of, um, you know, I. I you don't want to overthink drums, and, I, and as a drummer, you, you you can fall into that sometimes, where you you think too drummerly like, and you want to do something that's cool, but just because it's cool in drum world might not be cool in song world. Might not and be what's best for the song. I guess. Exactly. So I think as as I was maturing as an as a as a as an artist, and uh, more coming into my own in those eleven years between uh i could put some of those things aside and just go this is what's cool for this is what's best for the song and let's, let me do that as, as opposed to what's gonna make my drummer friends go hey man that's really cool so because you said that second guess doesn't get the same love as the other two songs i'm gonna put some extra love on it so uh, i have the following notes for second guess i have beautiful piano playing unique bass great vocal delivery one of my favorites just want to give it a little extra love and then awesome. we'll, thank you we'll, appreciate we'll, that we'll move on so uh looking for a sign right where i want to be and armchair lovers these are slower songs tony are you also a sucker for a good ballad tell me i tell am me i am i i mean i don't try to write ballads i don't intend to i just sometimes uh the lyrics come first and then you don't know i don't know what how it's going to end up sounding and then I toy around with a few ideas. I, I, I you know, I, I, uh, I dive into the emotional, you know, impact that the song has on me. And then that kind of dictates whether it's going to be slow or fast or medium. And I think those ones that you mentioned, uh, yeah, just, they kind of just lended themselves to be more sort of intimate and slower to get across what I'm trying to say. 
because you can't you gotta you gotta match the emotion right and you gotta that's not a it's not you know you gotta and you you gotta not get in the way of that and overthink it and if it's gonna be at you know 70 bpms then so be it so i i did my research and I was able to get some kind words from someone that played on your album, Lefty. Okay. Uh, so here are some kind words from Casey Roberts, one awesome. of the most talented musicians I've ever met in my life. Uh, it's a oh, long yeah. one. So, so bear with me. You got your, your, your tea with you there. Okay. Uh, this is what Casey has to say. He says, I was getting into the idea of trying out transcend, transcend, transcendental meditation I normally can say that word. I don't know why I can't say it now. Uh, I was sort of having trouble pulling the trigger and going down to the center to sign up. I was on a gig with Tony and I heard he did it. Tony has such a calm, positive, awesome vibe that puts people at ease. He told me he's been doing it regularly since the 90s. And the week he, and the week he started meditating, he wrote his first song. He was the clinching factor in going because I really liked Tony musically and as a person. I've stuck with it ever since, and it's a cornerstone of my life. Now, I've also had the pleasure of playing on one of his records, and we've been on many shows together. Tony is one of the people that make the Toronto music scene so great. A fantastic songwriter, creative, and a hell of a drummer and singer. Most importantly, he deeply understands the value of live music and the cultivation of the scene, as he proves every Sunday hosting the Freefall Open Mic. So that's from Casey Roberts. Awesome. Uh, Casey, thanks, brother. He's, uh, I don't know if, you, if you've seen his uh, Casey Roberts and the Revolution. Amazing. Many times in Toronto. He was my favorite live band. Anytime I had a date, I would bring them to that because he would get everybody shaking their asses and dancing and having a great time. And yeah. I knew he would never let me down as a live oh, yeah. performer. So. Amazing. And, and he's like a great guy, an amazing guitar player, amazing singer. He surrounds himself with amazing musicians for, for, his, uh, for his band. And we've become, we've gotten to know each other through, uh, the, through, through my night, through working with Tom Mackay uh, and uh, Steve York, my, my, my co-host at the uh, Open Mic. He had a band called, has a band called Mercy Flight and me and KC were part of that. So I got to know him just personally and he's a great guy. So when it came time to do my, um, my second record, you know, I've got a, I've got a bunch of guitar. I got Ricky Tilo, I've got Tom, I've got KC, but KC uh, played on a, Quite a few songs on there. One of, things I, I, one of the things I really loved about, about him is that he dives in really deep. Like, I go, okay, here's a, here's a rough demo of the, of, of, of the song. Obviously, you have to learn the, learn the arrangements and, uh, and all that. And then there's certain key things that, that, are, that have to be there. But then he takes it a step further. And, you know, he puts his personality in it and, and then trusts that, you know, because I've asked him, I asked him for a reason. I asked him specifically. So there's something about him that I'm looking for. And I want, I want Casey's personality. And he's not, and he brings that. So he comes to the table knowing what you've given him, knowing what, what I want him to know. And then he's bringing, he's bringing Casey Roberts and, and his, his musical um, wealth and expression. And it's amazing. So there's stuff that's like, wow, I didn't even think about that. And he just puts it on there. And it sounds beautiful, amazing, and it takes the song completely to another to another level. Yeah, he's a monster talent. 
So I, I mentioned earlier that uh, when I was 18, I went to school for audio engineering and my history with Casey, this is so random, but so I'm from Ottawa and he's, he was in Toronto and I went to school at 18 in London, Ontario. And I had a project where I had to go out and find a band and bring them in and record them. And that night I go out with friends. I go to a random bar in London, Ontario and Casey yeah. Roberts was playing oh. and he was singing, he was rapping, he was playing guitar. And I was like, this is the most talented human being on the planet. Yeah. So at 18, I randomly met him, brought him into the studio, recorded a song that ended up later on on a future album. And we've stayed in touch since then. So it's completely random. Awesome. And uh He's he's the man. And there I guess the go. last thing I was I'm just like praising Casey here. But uh, <laughs> the last thing I would say is uh, I had him on the podcast uh, a few months ago. Okay. And man, so, you know, some of the guests have sold 15 million albums, 10 million, 8 million. Mm -hmm. And Casey Roberts is still one of the top 10 most downloaded episodes of all time. Like wow. that's how much yeah. his fan base shows yeah. up and loves yeah. him. He created yep. this this amazing thing. With yeah, his career, so. yeah. Yeah, and that's totally worthy of that because he's he and he works hard, you know, he works hard and he delivers the goods. And, you know, uh, I've got nothing but mad respect for Casey Roberts. So rumor on the street has it that there is a third Lalo album that is in the works. Can you can you give us any insight? Yeah, I've written it. It's the songs are written. Uh, I want to start. Uh, I've got a I've got a full touring schedule ahead of me. Uh, I want to come back. Uh, probably later in the summer, I want to get I want to get started on that. It's gonna be lots of guests and uh, probably eleven songs, maybe twelve. I don't know. Probably. Well, you don't want to break the tradition. <laughs> I don't want to break the tradition. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's been uh, you know I don't want to wait another eleven years. You know, for for this next one, I got a lot to say, and um, I I just I love the recording process, man. I, I love I love just when you when you can see see your vision start to really take shape and materialize and sometimes in ways that you didn't anticipate hopefully hopefully you know there's surprises and it's, it happens on, on on both of the records uh where you just you know you trust the people around you and um and you let them in and let them express themselves in the way that that they do and then magic happens and, and then you're sitting there with something that you know you didn't think in your wildest dreams that uh, it would sound like that and I love that process that's one of my favorite things about the recording process is that so there's gonna be lots more of that lots of surprises and uh, you know I'm gonna take my time with it because I, I wanted to do it I want to do it right you know um, at the end of the day you, you do a, a record and you just have to be able to sit there and go yeah I love this and whatever happens happens but I know in in you know deep down in my core that you know I express myself in the way that I wanted to and it sounds the way I want it to sound and I'm totally happy with it and uh you know be at peace with that so that's uh that's what it's going to be if you do end up with a 12th song that is undeniable that has to yeah. go on the album just make it a secret song deep secret into song. the 11th song so we don't yeah. upset the gods. On paper, upset, it still looks like that's 11. Right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, you think you're onto something there. Yeah. So I have one final question, and then we'll dive into Bedouin Sound Clash. Um, so, okay. So this is a hypothetical. Okay. So okay. bear with me here. Picture in the distant future. So let's say 
in a hundred years, in 500 years, in a thousand years, most of today's music has disappeared from public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yet there's one joy drop song and one Lalo song that survives in a capsule, the test of time, and it's still being listened to what song from each, you know, the band and then you as a solo artist, which songs would you choose to properly um, represent you and your music? So it doesn't have to be the most popular, but what you would want to present to future uh, generations of music listeners. Ooh. It's tough. I know it is for joy drop. It would be one or two or oh, okay. You can, you be, can choose three, but okay. I'm not happy about it. Okay. I'm okay. Just, it'll, it'll, it'll be, it'll be beautiful. Definitely life on the sun and possibly replaced. Perfect. And then for your solo music. For my solo, it would be, that's even tougher. Only one or two. I'm not giving you a three on this. Yeah, solo. that's, 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 you, you used your one time. That's yeah. a tough one. Uh, right where I want to be. And an apology. I'll go with that one. Perfect. Good choices. Yeah. It's funny. We're, uh, we're almost two hours into the interview and we're wow, just fast. getting, we're just getting the Bedouin sound clash now, sound clash mm -hmm. now, which is like, what's super exciting that's going yeah. on okay. today for you. Um, so we'll get through what we can here. Uh, sure. you've been with the band since August of 2019. Yep. It's, it's kind of like bittersweet where you, you join this band it's super exciting. And then there's a global pandemic. I guess yeah. it's the equivalent of sometimes want to die right, right before 9-11. I don't know why this keeps happening to you. I know. The, the rock these, and roll gods are like. Yeah, <laughs> the the, the, the acts of God or whatever keeps yeah. happening. Um, yeah. But okay. So I guess the question is, were you, were, were you on like such a high joining this band and excited and then suddenly on such a low that it's like the opportunity was kind of taken away for a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, we, when I joined the band, our first tour, we toured the UK. And uh, that was, uh, I think around September of 2019. And right after that, we did about six weeks in the States with Mattis Yahoo, right across the States. And oh, then, I loved him. Is oh, a he's king, great. The king of, king for the day. He had one massive yeah. hit that, yeah. I was yeah, a, such a big fan back in the day. Like, like live, it's just so good. And so we just did that and then we took a little break and then uh, we did our Canadian headlining tour. Amazing. And then we, it was all set up. We had uh, going back to the UK, going to the States again. We had all these tour dates, all this stuff lined up again. And then like I told you, all the way to Kingston, all hell broke loose and everything shut down. So yeah, it was unfortunate. And then you don't know, like during COVID, I mean, so many things changed for people. There's lots of divorces and babies born and puppies and career changes. And, you know, people, you know, had time to sit there and reflect, make some changes in their lives, sometimes for the better, sometimes not so not not for the better. But you don't know how people are going to emerge on the other end and a band, you know, even more so because you're not just dealing with a, one individual. It's a, it's a collection of people that may decide we don't want to do this or we want to go in a different direction or we're not, you know. Anything could happen in terms of how things change, but I was glad to see that um, they were still going at it and they still wanted to continue and still, um, you know, uh, continue touring and 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 
have me involved in that, which was great. So, you know, we we were doing, you know, remember during the pandemic, it was certain air, certain times when things would open up for a little bit and, you know, you could go out, you could, you could uh, go see a show, but you, with all these restrictions. So we had little glimpses of being able to be able to perform and then, uh, you know, get shut down again. And then uh, last summer we started doing festivals and then um, kind of carried us through some one-offs. And then uh, we just, we just did a little Canadian run uh, last month. You had five dates across Canada. In Canada, yep. And then uh, we're going to be doing six weeks in the States next month with uh, the Interrupters. So there's yeah, there's one be... Canadian date, isn't there? Maybe Vancouver, uh, Vancouver somewhere yeah. in there? Yeah. A little so little be... touch of Canada. A little touch well. of Canada, but that's uh, that's going to be a good one. So yeah, just glad that they they uh, stuck to it and got back and got back at it. Do, do you feel that the two years of lockdown where there were no shows made you really appreciate the recent shows that you just did and the ones that are coming up? Completely. And I hope, I hope everybody, even if you're not a musician, I hope everybody appreciates that because listen, music is, it's everywhere in your life. You probably can't go a day without hearing it in some way, shape or form. And, and I hope that, uh, you know, people, uh, realized how precious it is and how important it is and that they shouldn't be taking it for granted. And when I say that, you know, support it, you know, like you have to support artists. You have to, you know, you know, but I mean, I know the way that the industry is set up now, the streaming thing, artists aren't getting paid. Uh, but if you, you know, their live shows, go see them, you know, listen to the albums, um, you know, don't just think that it falls from the sky and it just magically appears. No, these things cost a lot. They take a lot of time and effort. And uh, if you don't support it, then there won't be, it won't be there. And not, not in, in, in a way that's meaningful. And I'm not talking, you know, cause they're getting to the point now where they got AI creating music and there is no artist behind it. Right. And is that what, what is that what we, where we wanted to, to, to end up? No, but it's going to, if, if uh, artists don't step up and, and people, uh, don't get behind it and support it. So, so yeah. So yeah, the, the, the pandemic definitely uh, was a time to reflect and uh, appreciate. You're, you're feeling gratitude that you're able to get out there again. Yeah. Cause there were periods where we, we thought we might never play live again. Yeah. Right. There was uncertainty before the vaccines. People thought you'd just go outside and die. Like we didn't yeah. know what it was. So yeah. it's, it's, it's nice that things seem to be back to yeah. mostly I, back to normal. And I remember when, you know, people were doing like uh, shows with people sitting in their cars. You know, we don't want that. I got, I got that people did what they had to do just to, to, to get themselves out there. But, you know, we don't want to go see a concert sitting in your car with uh, a, a, a crowd full of people in their cars. No. Yeah. Honk twice if you like the song. And exactly. it was, it, man, the hardest is comedians were doing the those kind of drive-through shows oh, so imagine with brutal, comedy yeah, where there's yeah. literally like the person can't laugh in front of you there's nothing <laughs> right? harder than stand-up and yeah. then imagine that you're doing stand-up to just cars and know? crickets yeah 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 oh man not 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 easy so uh back on episode number 67 of the podcast yeah. i had our mutual friend seku lamamba yeah. and his in his history of playing with cardinal and serena Ryder and everybody uh he was playing with bedwin sound clash yeah. and uh he's now with big wreck um 
And then later on, I find out that you're playing with Bedouin Soundclash. So I'm like, yeah. oh, that's awesome. Two people I know have been playing with Bedouin Soundclash. So yeah. uh, is there, did did he have anything to do with with you playing with them? Is there a story? He had everything, he had everything to do with it. Uh, he's He'd moved on to some other gigs. And uh, when they parted ways, uh, they he said, why don't you get Tony Ravel out? And Eon and Jay, the the... the the principal guys in the band went, yeah, why didn't we think of that? Of course, because I've known them for a while. And uh, I've, I've known, uh, I've worked with Eon even before that on with Ivana Santilli's uh, stuff. Jay I've met in, in our travels. And um, for them, I was like, yeah, of course. So I, you know, that was Seku putting in a good word for me and then making them realize that, yes, that makes sense. So it wasn't even, I didn't even have to audition. It was just like, Oh, how here's nice is that? Where you yeah, don't have here's to the songs. We got a rehearsal on this date, and away we go. And uh, it's been it's been a blast ever since. Great guys, and uh, got to know them really well over the over the years, and uh, just love playing with them and hanging around. And yeah, it's been a great experience. Did you feel a lot of pressure joining a band that already had five albums and 19 singles and multiple gold and platinum certifications? Did you feel a ton of pressure joining that band or was it more excitement at the opportunity of playing with such a successful band and knowing that you were the right man for the job on, on drums? Yeah, I didn't feel pressure. Um, I mean, I, I obviously I knew, I know, I knew the band and I know what they've done and, and their history. Uh, but I also know that, you know, I chose them and they chose me and, and they chose me for a reason and I chose them for a reason. And those, that's the thing that drives it. So if I, if I just, if I do what I do, if I be me, I think that's going to be, it should be good enough. Obviously, you know, you got to put the work in, you got to learn the material, you got to, you know, do all that stuff. But if I do that, which I did, then everything's going to be fine. And then there's a slight adjustment period because I'm not Seiko and I'm not Pat, their other drummer or other, the other guys that have been in there before. I'm me. So they, they're they going to adjust to me a little bit. I'm going to adjust to them. You do some shows, you have some conversations, you iron some things out and, and, uh, and you move forward. And it's, and it's been, it's been, it's been great. So uh, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed every, every step of the way. What's the crowd reaction when you play when the night feels my song? Uh, because since that song came out in, I don't know, 2004, somewhere around there, I've been personally, as a singer-songwriter, I've been playing that song at open mics and it's been mm -hmm. in my set yeah. and people lose their minds. It, yeah. You know, maybe people don't know the verses, but by the pre-chorus and the chorus, people are singing and dancing yeah. and cheering. Uh, yeah. If it has that effect with some schmuck like me playing it, uh, what is it like when the actual <laughs> band is playing it live to a it's crowd that wants to see them? It's pretty magical always. And, uh, you know, it's funny, some artists get a little bit precious when it comes to their the things they're most popular for. And they feel like, oh, I don't want to play that anymore, you know. And it's like, why don't you just appreciate the fact that you've touched people to the point where they want to come pay money to come and see you and you've moved them and they want they want to experience that with you in the room. And uh, to deny that just because you're being a bit precious, I think it's, you know, it's a bit silly, but they don't. They embrace it and the room sings that song to at the top of their lungs and it's a magical experience and it's awesome. You know, it's, I mean, their fans are, uh, are pretty, pretty, you know, they're pretty diehard and they sing along to a lot of the stuff, but that one in particular, because that's the one that, you know, if a, if a, if a, if a guy's 
you know, a fan and he brought his girlfriend who's coming along to check it out. She'll sing along because she knows that song too, right? Whereas he'll be singing along to all the songs. But it's a, it's a great feeling when the whole room is singing along. So, would, would you say that that's your favorite Bedouin Sound Clash song to play live? Or is there another song when you look ahead at the set list, there's one song where you go, man, can't wait to get to that one? Yeah. Um, there's a song called Saltwater that uh, was on the last album that we, we don't always play. We played it on the last tour. And our first Canadian headlining tour with me, we played it. We had a horn section and there's this horn. Oh, that's cool. A horn riff that kind of goes throughout and we played it with them. And it's, it's a great song to play. It's, uh, it's just got a great vibe to it. And, um, you know, it's Jay, the lead singer. He's from, uh, he's a, he's a West coast boy. So uh, the, the original, the first line is salt water surrounded me all, all my life because he, that's where he grew up around salt water. So I just love the sentiment and uh, the vibe of the song. Um, their stuff is uh, a lot of the drumming is not what you would think. Like as a drummer, it's like, Oh, I wouldn't think to do that. Jay comes up with a lot of those drum parts. And I could tell that because I was like, drummers don't think like that. That's, that's coming from a different kind of mind. So it's sometimes challenging, but fun to play this, the stuff that, uh, that that uh, he put um, his his drum ideas um, behind the songs because it's like not conventional sometimes and sometimes it is but usually there's some element that you, know, you can kind of tell that this is just a a creative mind that doesn't play drums came up with that. In in a lot of cases for Canadian bands. Uh, they might find success in Canada, but they don't find success in other countries. In yeah. Bedwin's case they've had the success in Canada, but they've also had success in the UK, in Scotland, in Switzerland. You Australia, mentioned that yeah. Australia, you mentioned that before the pandemic, you're able to get out to the UK a bit and play. Yeah. Um, you've been doing Canada. You're about to do the U S um, are there any plans to get out to some of the other countries now that the world's opened up a bit? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we were going to go to Australia, but that didn't work out this summer, but hopefully we'll, that'll happen, you know, at some other point. And uh, hopefully we'll get out to the UK again for sure, because uh, like I said, they like you said, they've, they've got a strong, uh, strong fan base out there, and in Australia. So it'd be be great to uh, to take the show out there and uh, give them, give the people what they want. Yeah, you, you see, it seems like Australia just loves Canadian music. You see that with the success of City and Color that can go out yep. there and 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 Bedouin Sound Clash. Uh, so the new album is We Will Meet in a Hurricane 2022. So it just came yep. out last year. Uh, that's what you guys are currently promoting and touring behind. Two singles, Shine On, as well as Something Lost and Something Found. What has the reception been like so far for the album from fans, from critics? Uh, I listened to it. Um Man, every Friday I see what new albums are out. I yep. listen uh, on average about three hours of music a day. I don't know how I still have my hearing, but uh, yeah. uh, I listened to it. I thought it was a, a great album. Yeah. Uh, what What are you hearing from from your side? Well, I mean, I uh, I don't know. I don't have a car, but I, every now and then I, I get the the you know these auto share like an auto share car car rent. Uh, what do you call it? Not a car rental thing, but you just book a car or whatever so every now and then i'm driving around and i i got it on indy 88 or whatever and i and i hear the song i think not what was the single it's um we fell in love in a, no not we fell in love the one with the interrupters on it and uh and i hear it and i'm like wow sounds great on the radio and then you go you do a show 
and you're kind of in a bubble because you know you're rehearsing and you're getting ready to do this thing so you're not really you know you don't you're not really aware of how it's resonating with people and then you go to a show and when you play new songs sometimes audiences don't react you know as well to the new stuff as they do to the stuff that's uh that's that they know and uh but i've seen the reaction people singing along and uh they respond to it which is great you know um like i said they have some they have a pretty diehard uh fan base that uh you know listens to everything and and they embrace it quickly so the album hasn't been around that long but they already know all the words so it's a good it's a good sign so i have a fan question sent in here this is from samantha morris her question is, what would you say is the biggest difference between touring with Joy Drop a few years back versus Bedouin Sound Clash now? I guess from a band perspective and also from an industry perspective, if things have really changed. Well, the whole industry has changed, which is interesting. So, um, you know, people, uh, when, when Joy Drop was around, it was, it was, it was a radio video era. So people kind of got your music because they heard it on the radio or they saw your video on Much Music or MTV, right? That's not the driver anymore. I mean, radio is still, it's still there, but most people don't get their music from the radio. It's a streaming thing. So your audiences can be a little bit more diverse um, because people kind of pick and choose. They, 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 cherry, they cherry pick and... Uh, Whereas in the past, people tended to listen to a type of music, right? Or certain types of artists. Now they, they're kind of a little bit more all, all over the map. And, um, but, you know, the similarity being that live music isn't going anywhere. Uh, however you listen to it, that's one thing, but nothing will, will, will replace uh, the live experience. Um, not a lot has changed in terms of uh, that experience. It's gotten a lot more expensive, that's for sure, you know. Um, but people still have a hunger and a need to to experience that in a room with the artist and a bunch of like-minded people uh, musically, and that's not that's not going anywhere. But you know, I still love touring uh, as much as I always, as I always have, and 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 it's because of that because of that basic element that that has not changed um so yeah they're very different uh, uh musical experiences um joy Drop was my band you know whereas in bedouin it's you know i am a part of something that i did not create but i'm i am definitely a part of it so you know um my my stamp is not is not the same as as it was as it was back back then but i still get my my joy from uh just the musical experience and uh, the expression of that and the sharing of that with, with Bedouin as I, as I did with Joy Drop. So I have some, some kind words sent in from a member of one of Canada's most iconic bands. This is from Jonathan Gallivan, a member of Moist. This is guitarist okay. for Moist. Yep. What's funny is he recently moved to the, uh, the, the Ottawa area yep. and uh you know, I was posting about I'm a goalie in hockey and he was saying he hasn't played since he moved. And the last three weeks he's come out and he's played in my hockey league. I brought him out. And can yeah. you believe it? I bring this guy out. I think it's a good idea. He scores the first goal of the game on me. I mean, on I you. regretted my decision immediately, <laughs> yeah, but anyways, he's back on the ice. 
and I've been connecting with him. So this is what Jonathan says. Uh, this yeah. goes back to the joy drop days. He says, okay. uh, Tony is an incredibly friendly soul and is very calming and welcoming. Joy Drop and my band at the time, My Brilliant Beast, were showcased at South by Southwest in 1998. I would have been 26 then. Yeah. And this was my very first time playing a serious live concert ever. Yeah. I remember Tony talking me through it and calming my nerves. It really helped me make that special event. It really helped make that a special event for me. So that's from Jonathan Gallup. Well, that's awesome, man. Reminiscing about the Nice. Past. That is great. You know, it's when we, in that era... And I remember it was like Moist, Big Wreck. I'm looking at some of the bands the, the, uh, in the back, in your backdrop. There, Our Lady Peace, um, I'm Mother Earth. Uh, Finger and, 11. Finger 11. Uh, and we, even to, and a con line crush to this day, you know, um, I see these guys and, you know, they're still doing it. We're still doing it. And we remember, like, you, you sit around and you, you, know, you remember stories. Sometimes you even forget you know, little incidences that, that, uh, that happened, but, um, you know, we're all still connected that way through our love of music and, and, and our travels. Canada is not that it's a big country geographically, but it's not that big in terms of a market. So you cross paths quite quickly and quite easily when you're at a, when you, when you reach a certain, a certain level and, you know, uh, and then those connections that form out of that, out of those connections, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. So, yeah. So uh, last year, Moist released an album called End of the Ocean. And mm -hmm. every year I have a, a podcast episode, the best albums of the year. And I had their album in, in my best albums of 2022. So if you haven't heard it yet, it man, it is very good. It's up there okay. with their, their best albums like Great Here, Cre Creature and um, uh, Silver, their, their debut. So it's, it's worth checking out. So I have just a few more questions and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Uh, you You've man, you've had a lengthy career You in, in the music industry. You mentioned it's, it's I think, the 20th or 25th year anniversary of, of yep. one of the Joy Drop albums. Yep. How do you keep this fun after all these years? You look like you're having a great time. I, I am because, What's you know, the it's, secret? It's, it's just a passion. And it's a, it's a you know, the, it's, a, it's not even, a, it's not a question. I mean, listen, when you're passionate about something, it, it can bring you the most joy and it can also, you know, bring you the most pain, you know, and it's not always great. Uh, sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it can be pretty, pretty brutal, but at the end of the day, you're doing what you love to do. It, it, it clothes me, it feeds me, it, try, it takes me all over the world. And I consider myself fortunate that I'm able to do that. And, um, you know, it's never stopped. And, it, and, and, and until, uh, you know, I take my last breath, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, you just keep your head up, keep working hard, keep searching, keep, uh, evolving and expanding and um and it, and it stays interesting and fun so i have i have one final quote can you handle kind words one more time or am i laying I, it on too thick man can I, I, can, I can take it i can take it my heart's oh. big and it's getting full today all day amazing so uh i put out the bat signal on your behalf and all the great canadian drummers showed up for you so uh this is from dan todd drummer for platinum blonde and honeymoon suite okay so he keeps it short and sweet here he says i absolutely admire tony's playing he is brilliant so that's from Dan awesome. Todd. Just nice. a little, a little one you can store somewhere in here. I'll you know? take it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Amazing. All right. So we're, we're down to just, I don't know, three, three final questions. These are the, the deeper, most meaningful, hardest questions. Okay. Are you ready for these ones? Bring it on. Bring it on. All right. Um, 
when you look back on your life and career, yeah. what are you most proud of? And what are you most grateful for? Um, I'm most proud of like uh, that story that I told you about that, that, that guy that was going to commit suicide. And what I, w- w- the thing about that is that you can create something um, that means something to you, share it with the world and actually have a positive uh, effect on them and uh, maybe uh, give them something to think about or alter their trajectory in, in ways that you never imagine when you're sitting in your room writing it. And that's a powerful thing. And, and, and I think I'm most, prou- I'm most proud of that. Amazing. There yeah. you go. Uh, so we, we do something here on the podcast where we have um, a, a past guest leave a question for a future guest without mm-hmm. knowing who it is. Uh, so I have a question for you here. Uh, okay. This is from another drummer. So this is from Suave Pure from the band Ill Scarlet. So a yep. gold selling band here from Canada. Um, his question is, what was your, oh, this is kind of what we just asked, but what was your most proud moment as a musician? Yeah. So I guess I could organize that, that better and just that, left his question the in there. There you go. But there you go. Again, that's like, like, like I said, and uh, you know, like I said before, early on, it's like, you got to get into this thing for the right reasons. If you're trying to do it just to be popular or to get laid or get money, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Just You do it because, you know, you got something to say. You think it can have a positive effect on other people and you want to share that. Um, and when it happens, you know, you, you go, yeah, thank you. That's that's why I got into this. So. What's funny is uh, usually that question that people leave is ridiculous. Like, what's yeah. your favorite plant? Like, yeah. when's the last time you went to an art gallery? Just random stuff. So yeah. I guess I never assumed it would be a question that would duplicate, you know, yeah. the question before it. So uh, there you go. A little embarrassing on my part. Uh, okay. <laughs> Final question for you here. Yeah. If you could go back and actually we need you to leave a question for the next guest before okay. I forget. So without yep. knowing who it is, uh, yep. I, once you provide the question, then I'll tell you who it is. I got someone awesome coming up on Tuesday. Anything come to mind, funny, silly, memorable, intense, any question come to mind right now I can ask. Yeah. Ask them, listen, as a musician, whether you're a writer or an instrumentalist, you got to get your inspiration from somewhere. And, um, where where is it that you go for that because some people it's it's a different thing some people i I can watch a movie and get inspired to 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 create music so i'm always curious what non-musical thing what non-musical place do you go to to get inspiration so that it so that it affects your creativity that's a great question so uh on tuesday i have bill priddle from trouble charger so oh, that'll cool. be uh, yeah. that'll be a good question for him. And uh, now, now it's the fi- final question. I've been teasing this final question mm-hmm. uh, for the last twenty minutes. So, uh, final question is: If you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your ten-year-old self, yeah. and you could take a lifetime's worth of 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 mentorship and training and experience and everything you've lived since then, mm-hmm. and you could provide some words of advice for cute little Tony sitting there, innocent yeah. little 10 year old Tony with a world, a whole life ahead of him. What yeah. advice do you provide to him to help him navigate this life experience? I would say, uh, little Tony, you have a gift. Uh, don't take that for granted. 
And don't think that just because you have that, it, it takes care of itself because it doesn't. You got to nurture that gift and you've got to feed that gift and you've got to take some chances and uh, put yourself out there and uh, don't be afraid to be afraid. And where, where can people find you online? So whether um, they want to stay up to date with Bedouin Sound Clash, whether they want to uh, see what's going on with your, your solo music, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they're checking in for when that new album comes out. Yeah. Uh, maybe they want to play an open mic. Uh, maybe they want to slide into the DM somewhere and, yep. and say that they love the interview and they're looking for a drummer on their next album. Where do they go for, let's say websites and social media? Yeah. Well, I uh, have my, uh, Lalo music.com, uh, website that's Lalo music. That's L E H L O music. Dot com. That's if you want to learn about me, get a hold of me. You can find me through there. Uh, FreeFallSundays.com is uh, where we have our open mic at the Dakota. We're actually there tonight. Come by there, six thirty. Um, oh, so mine, something. I'm also I've I've got this fun cover band that I that I call the Undercovers. That we just I'm actually the drummer and the lead singer. So we just do all kinds of cool covers. That's the Undercovers.ca. Uh, we play not that often because the, the guys in the band were all touring touring guys. So when our schedules allow, we have some fun at the Dakota, uh, not Dakota, the Wheat Sheaf or, or the Black Pearl or wherever. So we do that. Um, and then social, sound, social media, if, yeah, you can go to their website and also social media. I mean, uh, the streaming platforms, I'm on uh, all of those, Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, you can find my music there. You can find Joy Drop there um yeah that's that's perfect and is there is there anything you'd like to say to the fans that have been with you since the very beginning they followed you your entire career regardless of which band regardless of which, which instrument you're playing any any words for these fans first of all thank you i appreciate uh the support and the love and uh there's lots more to come uh stay tuned and that's, that means Joy Drop, that means uh, Lalo, and uh, I'm involved in a lot of uh, other things. So just uh, just stick with me. We got a, a long road ahead, and it's going to be an awesome ride. And thank you. Amazing. So as, as we wrap up here, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a, as a drummer and as a singer-songwriter. Uh, I want to thank you for being so welcoming and supporting to local music. I'm speaking from experience, uh, coming out to the open mics and really feeling that that love and support and community. So you're, you're helping, you know, give back to the community and, and you're helping foster the next uh, I don't know, the next generation of musicians to come out of Toronto and Canada. It's very important. Uh, I want to thank you for creating great music with Joy Drop, with your solo career. Uh, this is music that I listen to. So thank you for, you know, you, enriching my life with, with your music. Uh, I want to thank you for keeping the Bedouin Sound Clash train rolling. This is a great <laughs> band. Yeah. And hey, if they don't find you, if they don't find the right drummer, maybe they're not out there playing, who knows? So yeah. uh, thank you for, for, um, for being a part of that train, keeping that, the, you know, the yeah. train on time and coming out of the station and, yeah. Uh, I'm really excited to see what you do with the band in the future uh, yeah. when it comes to the, the the creation of the music, the recording yeah. of the music and all yeah. that stuff. And then last yeah. but not least, uh, just personally, I want to say thank you for sitting down with me for the, the last 
two plus hours, yep. uh, allowing me to, as a fan, pick your brain and ask the questions I've wanted to know the answers to for a very long time. So Tony, I appreciate, or I appreciate you. And I really appreciate, uh, the interview and the time we've spent today. Hey, Joel, it's been a blast. And I appreciate the fact that you are out there. Uh, one, you're a lover of music, clearly, and you are, you're a musician yourself, but that you're giving uh, a platform for, for all of us to, uh, to share, you know, our, our, our past, our journey, our future. And um, that's an important thing. You know, uh, got to keep that, keep that train, you keep that train rolling because uh, we need all the support and the outlets that, uh, that uh, are out there for us to get to get the word out and let people get a little insight into uh you know what drives us and you know that's a great thing you're doing brother thank you so much you're very welcome and uh look to to the fans of the podcast to the to the listeners to the 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 tony fans to the joy drop fans to the lalo fans to the bedwood sound clash fans thanks for sticking with us for the last two hours and we'll see you on the next episode Cheers. next time bye if you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Joel Martin Mastery. Joel is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Joel Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message and I'll see you on the next episode.